Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid. Welcome to another episode of the NRL All-Stars Podcast. This is Barnsley, back for the weekly talk and footy episode. Huge week this week. We've just had the Origin teams announced, which is massive. And look, it's just such a big week. The Origin teams threw up so many different questions. There's also everything else happening in rugby league to talk about. Really, really classic legend rewind that we're doing tonight as well. So I wanted to make sure that I got Luke Garrity back on. He only came on a couple of weeks ago, but Luke, I, had to, I just had to get you on for the Origin chat. So welcome back, mate. Cheers, mate. King has it's a wonderful time of year. Shift our focus off the club footy for a little bit and uh, get right into the Origin stuff. So it's, a, it's always it's always a, um, no matter, like I love my club footy and everything, but it's always that Sunday when they're about to pick the teams, you always get really itchy to hear that it gets to six o'clock on Sunday night and you're like, who's in the team? Who's in the team? It's really hard not to get caught up in that Origin stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. Do you reckon, though, like it might be me just being, you know, getting a bit old, but don't you reckon it used to be a lot better when you used to like be watching the news as a kid and like <laughs> waiting for the list to just drop? And like, you know, even like back in the day, you couldn't pause, but, you know, when you could start pausing on the Foxtel and stuff, you pause and you'd look at it on the news. And now it's a little bit of a, you know, it gets leaked during the day. They don't really, they don't release the full team on the news properly. Like there's a little bit of an anti-climax now. Yeah, I know. It, it's not as good as it used to be. I, I, I remember used to watch it on NBN News and you had to wait and sit through all the boring crap that wasn't sport on the news the whole time. You just like, get through all this. Like, I don't care what's going on in other countries around the world or what's happening. You just get to the origin teams and they flash it up and you don't have enough time to digest it before it's back <laughs> off the screen. You yeah. wait till you get the paper in the morning and trying to remember who was in it. But now nah, the leaking does annoy me because uh, I... I just announce it earlier. Like, you know, it doesn't need to be six o'clock Sunday. If you're going to have five New South Wales players flying across the state to get to Sydney into camp and we're all going to hear about it because it's leaked on Twitter. I mean, just announce the teams, right? Um, but anyway, it is what it is. It, it, it's still exciting. But yeah, there, there's nothing like the old days when you couldn't actually find out who was in it and get to wait and then pick up the paper on the way to school on a Monday morning and try to get it down on the bus and make out what all the experts were thinking of the selections and all that. It, it, it was really, really good back then. Yeah, it did used to be a case, and this is the thing with sport, isn't it? And, it, you know, it isn't one of our topics, but it's a it's a nice sort of chat that, you know, especially for, I guess, if you're in that 18 to 25 um, age bracket, especially as rugby league fans, you wouldn't even really remotely remember how it used to be. But it's almost a thing with sport, definitely the last decade, but even the decade before that, it came to fruition where before that, it was much of it was less is more, you know, the less information that you had and the less exposure that you had, the less media available to you, especially social media didn't exist. It was just, it was that much more exciting because you really had to work for it, you know, and you you had to go and (laughs) find the papers, you had to read books, you had to go and talk to people in the street or at school and everything just to talk about and find out information and stuff. It, It was just so much different and it was a lot harder, but I just, Like, I love all all the common conveniences of, uh, you know, 2022 society with the media and the internet where it is and the social media and everything. You know, it's it's all great, but it does have its drawbacks, doesn't it? Because you just, everything's so easy. You kind of take it for granted and it's just not as exciting. And, you you know, it's, it's just too easy in a lot of ways to be a fan these days. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the obvious ones, the Daniel Tupu thing, which I'm sure we'll get to in selections, is in the old days, you would have had the big jaw, jaw drop at six o'clock on the Sunday when, when they didn't announce Ado Car. 
and announced and you know and announced the emu you'd have that big oh holy hell like really and they're like is that what he's done like i didn't see that coming and all that sort of thing like like it or dislike it but um there's, and there's plenty of those over the years there's been that many bolters that eric growth jr was one i remember from when i was relatively young was sort of plucked out of nowhere to get a game and you, you always used to have them but now like everyone by the time they announce the team we all know because it's been sort of slowly drip fed to us on twitter the whole way through that you don't get that that shock and and, and thought process anymore so yeah it, it does take a bit of the charm away albeit you know overall there's you know a lot of better things now than there was then that's for sure it's almost like watching the sixth sense but you know somebody telling you right before what the ending was anyway so yeah, that's like, right yeah uh, look i've i've said before um a couple of times on various podcasts not necessarily this one that you know i'm I'm a big NBA fan, as a lot of people know. When you're coming up through the 90s as an NBA fan, you couldn't actually, you, you didn't, you barely saw a game. Like, it was really hard. It was all replays and stuff. But the biggest thing that I remember in high school was, and again, the internet was barely there. And it was, it, it, I used to buy a newspaper. And it was basically a weekly newspaper. And it, because there's so many NBA games, it just doesn't get, didn't get covered in Australia. So you get this weekly newspaper, right? And it would have all week's, NBA games, which is probably, you know, 60 games or however many they played. And it'd have all the box scores and all the reviews. And you'd go through as a kid in high school and look at all the box scores to see what everyone <laughs> scored and stuff and, and who played. And, oh, how this guy got benched like five days ago. You didn't know what happened that game. And all the scores <laughs> and stuff because you just, you didn't actually have the exposure to be able to see it. It wasn't on TV very much. If it was, you know, Channel 10 would have one game delayed at 10.30 of a night once a week type of thing and the other 50 games you didn't get to see. You just you had to actually buy a newspaper to see what the scores were for the past week and, and who was playing and stuff. It's it would yeah. come a long way from there, but you know, it's um look, we digress. If anyone hasn't listened to the podcast before and hasn't heard Luke before, Luke is one of the co-hosts on the on the Rugby League Cemetery podcast. The Rugby League Cemetery podcast is a fantastic one that you can catch Luke on, uh, where they dissect old games, they review old games, and it's great. You, you hear about all these old games that you might have watched when you were younger, or maybe you're young yourself now and you never got to experience it and, and Luke and the Rugby League Cemetery podcast will bring you through those games and review them. So that's great to listen to for this podcast. This We've got a weekly Supercoach episode, just had a massive buy round special that's just been posted. So that's always hitting on a Wednesday, but we always do our talk and footy episode each week as well. And that hits around a Friday where you can listen to us just talk about Rugby League with various guests. And that's what this one's going to be about. So look, we started to talk about Origin, Luke, but before we get to that, we do need to talk about the round that was that we've just had go by. Round 12 was a, a pretty big round because I think there was a lot of matchups uh, uh, that were quite interesting. None more than seeing the Cowboys come up against the Panthers. So certainly that was one of the big talking points of the round. Now, the Panthers got up 22 nil, And I guess it's one of those games where the the, the Cowboys did have Tom Malolo not play. Um, they did have felt out with an injury as well. So, I mean... They could say that, you know, they're a bit under strength there, and they certainly were. Another comprehensive victory, 22-0 versus the Cowboys. And I did say the week before, you know, I felt like the Storm had had that many key players out that it was just it was hard to take much from that Cowboys win yet to actually anoint them as like a, a top two or three type of team, which is where they're sort of gunning at it at the moment. And I thought that the Penrith one was a litmus test. And look, they did pretty well in, in spurts against the Penrith Panthers. I wouldn't say they did any better than what the Roosters did um, the week before. But they got kept to zero, and I think that, that was a really big deal. Like, obviously, the Cowboys have had one of the best defences in the comp, definitely in the last two months of, of games. But the Panthers, you know, really showed them that 
they can have a good defense and that's fine. But if you can't attack, you're going to be in trouble against the top sides. And Penrith 22 nil was, was pretty comprehensive, even though the cows put in a good fight. Yeah, it was an interesting game. I, I thought the cows were pretty good as well. Um, I think like the first and obvious thing is that it is a two speed competition at the moment and it's Penrith. And then there is a giant gap to everyone else. Um, and if you just, sort of took Penrith out of the competition, this would be an incredibly open comp at the moment where you'd say, oh, you know, you can make a case for Parramatta, you can make a case for for Melbourne, um, the Cowboys who, you know, beaten Parramatta and Melbourne now and you go, oh, the Roosters are coming good and they've, they've had a good a good couple of games um, in a row against good sides and stuff like that leading into Penrith. Um, but Penrith are just a long way ahead of any, of everyone um, presently. Well, it's a shame we didn't get to see them again, play against Melbourne at full strength. That would have been good. But, uh, you know, uh, they look very, very good at the moment and hard to beat. Cow- I, I thought the Cowboys were good. I, I do. There's, there's sort of two ways to look at that. The first one is they were, inc- they were incredibly good in defence. They, they sort of held Penrith up two or three times. They kept it to six for a very long time in circumstances where I was watching that and thinking there was probably about 13 teams in the comp that would mm. have been down by about 24 to 30 at half time and probably lost by 50, you know, like pretty comfortably lost by 50. Um, there's no, I was watching it going, you know, as a Newcastle fan, I was like, we really would be down by 50 here. Like they are just on top of them. And it was still only about 10 nil. And that is a, obviously a really big positive, how hard they defended. And it explains why it blew out late and it explains why they were so, they, they made a lot of errors in the second half. And, you know, if you make that many more tackles and you did that behind in the game, for that long, you're going to wear out, and they did, um, and they still didn't let the score blow out that badly. You know, they they still only let in a, you know, they did, there wasn't this wave of points. So I thought that was a really big positive that they really held them to less points than a lot of teams would have. They really stuck in the fight, and it does explain some of the errors as, as well that they made. But if you want to flip that around, you can also say, hey, Penrith played against them and they couldn't get the ball, and they couldn't get the ball away. <laughs> from being at the try line the whole game, you know? Mm. And it's very good that they didn't concede a lot of points. But fundamentally, when they play them again, they're going to have to find ways to stop Penrith just marching all the way down the field and camping in their 20. And there wasn't any great signs that they were going to do that. There wasn't a lot of bad luck involved. Penrith were just marching down there, taking repeat sets, nearly scoring and being held out with desperate defence and really not having the Cowboys get down there that often. You know, there was one or two times the Cowboys went close to scoring, but one of the reasons they're so memorable is because they were barely down there. So I think if you were Todd Payton, you'd walk away saying they showed quite a lot. Um, They showed a lot of really good signs, but, you know, when we play again, uh, we're going to have to find a way to do a lot better than that in the middle of the field. Like they just did not hold the middle third. And Tal Malolo obviously is someone that will help a lot with that, but it's probably a bit deeper than that. They're really going to have to work out a way to, to counter them in the middle because Penrith strangled teams there and that they, they were all over them. They've been scoring a lot of points in games lately, the Cowboys, but it's been against inferior opposition and they haven't been, there've been some spectacular tries, but they've just been, they've had space and time everywhere. It hasn't been scoring well, they points did, they, against they did the put top teams. On Parramatta. They put 30 on Parramatta who beat Melbourne and Penrith. In that's fans. that's true as well. They did. So yeah, I will they, give they, a lot of credit for the Parramatta yeah, one. The Melbourne one, I think, is a, a little bit hard, like we said. But you're right. The Parramatta yeah. one is a really good litmus one as well on their attack. It's, I, I certainly didn't take anything out of... I didn't take anything negative out of Penrith scoring the 22 against no. them at all. Um, I was the same as you. I thought the defence was really good from them. It was just the fact that they couldn't um, attack or defuse 
what Penrith were doing to get the ball and they and they couldn't score points themselves. I yeah. think that was a big thing. And a lot of people were up in arms about that game saying, you know, Penrith were getting a lot of calls. But I thought Penrith were so methodical. Um, like They were like a, a Terminator football team. They were the T2 of rugby league where Ooh. it was just like, that's fine, you can hold us out. We're just going to get another set of six. That's fine, you can hold us out. We're just going to get another set of six. Like they, just, they played really well, Penrith, because a lot of even top teams would actually get... Uh, not the desperate's the wrong word, but they would also they'd get a little bit panicky and a little bit jittery. Yeah. That you know we've had a couple of sets in a row here. Whereas Penrith just always look like if we need twenty five sets in a row against you guys, we're going to take our twenty five sets in a row. And we're not going to change, and we're going to get our points. Yeah, that's right. That's how I sort of saw it too. I, I don't take anything negative out of it. I I, th- I always thought you know them and Cronulla have been the two that have jumped out a bit this year and, and surprised people. And I, I probably saw both as saying, yeah, I could see them making the top four. If, if they keep pushing and go well against the top teams, but I can't probably see them winning the comp. And, and the Cowboys, that's probably where I see it at the moment. I think, you know, in the finals, I, I, I think that it would be a big upset if they were to sort of win the grand final. But I didn't see anything in that game to make me think they can't maintain where they're at at the moment and be shooting around that, you know, two to five zone and pushing for a home game in Townsville in the finals, which would be massive and a really mm. big achievement because I thought they'd come about last and they, I don't think their roster looks that good on paper. He's getting a lot out of some guys and he's made some changes and, and, and good luck to them. They, they are going really well, but yeah, I don't think they're unlucky. I, I know a few people said that. I, I didn't see it that way. I thought Penrith were all over them. Um, the only thing I would say is if, if they can hold the middle a bit better and they do, you know, if they just if they do get a little bit more more luck and a few of those sort of repeat sets go dead and all that sort of stuff, I think it will have a flow onto their attack because I felt that whole second half was nearly a write-off. They were so tired that they just made mistakes that I haven't seen them make in any other game. And I, I don't think it was fitness. I just think, you know, if you make Ruben Cotter was on 60 tackles with 11 minutes left. They didn't take him <laughs> off. He was, he was going to break the record. I was so up for it. And a few of that, and Val started making some terrible errors in the middle of the third. But those guys just doing stuff they haven't done all year. And that happens when you are totally exhausted. So if they can find a way to do a little bit better next time, that they'll probably get a chance to put some better attack on as well. But that remains the challenge because everyone's struggling with that against Penrith. They're just strangling teams. And, and unless someone comes up with a way around it, they, they look very, very, very good at the moment. Uh, injuries pending to go back to back. Yeah, they certainly do. Um, look, the other big matchup was the Roosters versus Cronulla for very similar reasons. You know, the Roosters have been coming along nicely the last few weeks and playing a lot better than the Roosters that we expected. Uh, the Sharks are an up-and-comer, like you said, much like the Cowboys. So I was really interested in that game, not just as a Roosters supporter, but also to sort of see Cronulla hit an informed team in the Roosters. Um, I I thought, again, I, you know, I always stumble a little bit when I go to talk about the Roosters because I want people to think I'm biased, but... You know, I, even I'll just talk as a, a Roosters fan. I don't care. Like I was really happy with our first half. I, the couple of big takeaways for me was our defense was swarming. Like we were so good defensively, and Cronulla just got a taste of what it's like to come up against a team that was going to play semi-final style defense, where you don't have time and space, and you need to be able to make decisions and make plays out of that. And they just couldn't do it. I thought. The Cronulla attack was awful in the first half. They did absolutely nothing. They hardly did anything at all. And as a result, they never really troubled the Roosters in that first half. And the Roosters' attack was just as good as their defence, which was great to see, you know. And they really looked like a ruthless um, top couple of sides in that first half as far as how the Roosters performed and sort of what you thought in the preseason they could be. The second half was obviously different, and that's full credit to Cronulla and why I, like, I really enjoyed the game. 
the roosters did take the, the gas, the foot off the gas a little bit, um, which they do tend to do when they're comfortable. <laughs> but um, the sharks, you know, to give them credit, the, the attack in the second half was like night and day. You know, ten minutes in that second half, when everyone had softened up a bit, the sharks really started to attack a lot better and. It, it was great that they changed because I think a lot of lesser sides, even top eight sides, would have just been absolutely plummoxed like, by that first half from the Roosters and they would have just been dead in the water. They would have been tired, they would have been deflated, they would have been unmotivated and they would have thrown up a lot of what they did in the first half and kind of put the cue in the rack. Cronulla didn't do that. They actually changed their attack completely and the Roosters obviously came home strong when it mattered when they needed to sort of finish them off. So I thought it was a really good game. I was, I thought the first half from the Roosters was outstanding, but it was good signs from Cronulla that they actually made some adjustments in the second half too. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, I, I'll start this before I upset Cronulla fans by saying I, I am a bit caught up in them this year too because I really like watching them play and I'm, um, I love watching Nico Hines play and have a massive man. Oh, look, get in line, mate. Get in line, all right? Um, and, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolute king. But, um, yeah, they, they, I really like a lot of their players and how they're playing. And I, I'm really encouraged by how they're going as well. But I, I am going to, if you'll indulge me, debunk the Sharks a little bit because this thought that they've become this top side is just not actually borne out by the results of the games. And it comes back to a bias we have, a lot of us have about who goes well early. And if you have good results at the start of the year, your coach won't lose his job for starters. And it just, this narrative gets built that you've had a good season. And it's how Mary McGregor survived seven seasons because they were always coming fourth at round 12 at St. George. And by the time they came last, it wasn't, you know, by the time they came 10th, it wasn't thought of as a hapless season because you get this weird narrative. And and that very much applies to Cronulla because it'll take you through their results. I mean, they lost round one. They then beat Parramatta. 18-16, which is probably their best result all year, it's fair to say, because Parramatta are top side. They flogged the Dragons, which, okay, you know, they should do. They then beat Newcastle, which I don't think... The 18-0 against Newcastle looks a lot less impressive now than it did then when Newcastle were 2-1. and one. <laughs> They then flogged the Tigers. But that's round five. They flogged the Tigers. And when you go from there on, the results aren't, aren't looking all that pretty. Like, they go down to Melbourne and get and get... Wallops, they you know they got thirty four put on them down in Melbourne. They they win thirty four twenty two over Manly, which has two points to it. That the first one of which is that flogging Manly, you know, doesn't look as good now. Like the Broncos flogged them at Magic. Manly have now copped a couple of those, not just that one. Um, it also doesn't look that good because they were up twenty four or twenty four nil at half time and won thirty four twenty two. So there's an element of looseness to it. You know what I mean? Like there's that element that that wasn't a really complete mm. performance, albeit they, they they went hot for a bit. Then they go up and lose 16-7 to Brisbane. And they, they I watched that. They were terrible. That was that an night. awful, really awful bad. game. Um, awful, awful game. And they beat the Warriors, which, you know, 29-10, take what you will. They beat the Warriors. So they did they beat the Warriors with 11 um, men they then, for 10 minutes and then the 12 men. Uh, yeah, that was, it was, a, that was know, you know. It was. It was in. Look, it was impressive. I'll, I'll grant that. It was a good win. But, uh, yeah, at the same time, um, I, I don't know what New Zealand could have done more to not win that. Um, but, you know, what? I'll take that back a little bit. It was a good win. Um, they then get flogged by the Raiders, and they were insipid. That was similar to the Brisbane game. That was a very similar um, performance. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, very bad. They then go to the, play the Titans and, and have to really rally in that game. They get up 25-18, but that was a game 
that only the Titans could lose or the like the only the Warriors and the Titans and maybe the Tigers lose that game. Like they, the, I watched that Cronulla were really struggling. And in 12 minutes in the second half, they just went bang, bang, bang with these sort of loose tries. One was a nice one and some weird line breaks. You know, when the Titans just implode and we all know it, you watch, you only got to think of last week's game, v Brisbane where they got around them and I'm not minimizing the win, but they're getting some wins here against weaker opposition that where they haven't played that well is all I'm saying. And then they go to the Roosters and they get flogged in that. So you look at after, if we go after round uh, five, they've gone, they've got flogged by Melbourne. They have a, a win over Manly, which was pretty hot and cold. Then they get beaten by Brisbane. They beat the Warriors. They lose to the Raiders. They just beat the Titans and they get flogged by East. So that leaves them in a position where they're now coming seventh. Um, and if you look at the last few years, I mean, they came seventh, eighth, and ninth the last three years. So this narrative of this massive improvement, I mean, they're only sitting where they're sitting in the same spot, you know, that they've sat in in the last three years. So, you know, they, they really do. There is a danger that they're not going to do any better than they have before. And I don't think that'll happen. I think I do think they've got a really bright team. They've got a soft draw coming up. They play... Uh, they play the Warriors, the Titans, and the Bulldogs. So you'd expect them to win all of that. And then they get the Storm with Origin duty, players away. So there's a run there where they should win and solidify their spot. But I suppose I just wanted to make the point that there's a lot of positive talk around Cronulla, and, and I've been caught up in it myself. But when you really do look at where they're coming this year, that they have still only in wins and losses and spot on the table about where they've been the last three years. And with a few key players injured, they've got a few key forwards out now that, that they are missing. And they'll have to find a way to be a bit more consistent than they've been the last month if they want to be a side that's pushing for the top four. Because I've seen how good they can play, and that's where they should be aiming for. But all they're right, not uh, all right, all right, all right. I'm going to yeah. debunk the debunking here but only, only a little bit. So <laughs> oh, I think the truth will be somewhere in between. Well, I, well, I think the agreements will be somewhere in between of what you've just said and, and what I'm about to say. But um, I, I take on board what you've said, and I've actually made the points myself. I mean, I was drunk in my brother-in-law's shed cheering the roosters on on the weekend and giving it to him about how the Sharks were playing. So uh, <laughs> certainly um, I'm, I'm on board with, with most of what you said, and none of what you said is untrue. It's all very valid. But I will say... Um, I I think it's slightly unfair to expect them to to be at the level that we're, that they've kind of been put at by some people. Like we, we did probably get carried away, yeah, but this is a team that's only just been put together with a rookie coach in his first year. So if they do finish, um, you know, sixth or seventh, I, even though the results are the same as maybe or similar to the last couple of years, I would say it's an improvement because they've done it with a shift in the culture, the, the players that are in that team, they've got obviously young guys. And if that's how the young guys are going to start their career at Cronulla, you'd expect them to be able to build on that. The same as Fitzgibbon, you'd expect him to be able to build on that as well mm. um, and to get better and better. So certainly as year one, like a lot of the time when this type of thing happens and they have cleaned out, you know, a lot of players from there. So it is a lot of players together and they've got that rookie coach in Fitzgibbon, which as good as anyone thinks he is, it's still his first year. And you can see that in some of the games. Yeah, you know, you'd argue that the expectation was actually less than what they've done the last couple of years because it's sort of, you know, just just make 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 the make the top eight, oh, you know, just, yes. oh, we'll just make the top eight and build off that and get the team running and rolling, and then the next year we're going to try for top four. And I'm sure that that's sort of some of their thinking and how they're going. They started better than that, um, but you know, the teams like that, especially with how Cronulla are built, I, I think are going to have some of those down great games and growing pains. Now, if those growing pains are still there at the end of the year. Uh, if they miss out on the eight, um, if they just start playing a lot worse than what we've seen, then you know I, I think it's more of a concern. 
but at the moment, I just kind of see there's bumps in the road of a, a team that's sort of, you know, starting over almost and growing and got new pieces. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not too worried by it. I think they'll be fine. But that, the, the way everyone's talking, they're talking about them like a top side, and that's why I'm debunking a bit. I, yeah. They're way off that. Um, and I, 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 I take your point, but I'll tell you someone who won't, is that um, I reckon that if they're sitting seventh in 10 more weeks and everyone's saying how good Fitzgibbon's going, I reckon John Morris might be a little bit like, F you to everyone because he'll be like, well, I took him to seventh and eighth when I had Dugan and Fafita and Moyland and all these guys on the roster and massive money. And you sacked me when the, the cap became totally free. And now you're cheering the guy who's got them coming in the same position when he had all this money to spend and chose who he spent Ooh. it on. And I would have liked the chance because that's, that's the truth. And I, I don't think it's a bad call. I think Fitzgibbon's gone well. Um, I don't think there's any problem with that, but I'm just, it's just interesting how hyped up they actually are at the moment because at the bottom line, is that they the last year's roster was not as good as this year's roster, and they were, they finished ninth, and they're coming seventh. So they need to do a bit better than this to really say that that was a um, that they've improved markedly. Uh, their, their 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 knock always was beating the teams below them. I think last year they beat everyone below them on the table and had a terrible record against top eight sides. Um, so if we go through this year, they beat Parramatta, who's in the top eight, um, and they they lost to Melbourne, they lost to Brisbane. And they lost to the Roosters. So they've played four games so far against top eight sides and only won one of them. So that remains the question mark. It was always the question mark. And they need to beat teams in the top eight. And they haven't done it this year and they haven't done it for the last few. So they really do need to improve. And we won't find out for a while because they don't play anyone in the top eight. Um, if you take out Melbourne in the bye round, they don't play anyone until round 18. That's actually in the top eight when they play the Cowboys. So mm. it's a way to we'll find out at the back end of the year and they should be well-placed going into those games. I don't, I don't think that they are on the level of um, Melbourne, Penrith or even the Roosters uh, and maybe Parramatta as well. Um, or the Cowboys at the moment. The Cowboys well, the Cowboys are, are playing really good. It would be Cowboys, really yeah. interesting to see the Sharks and Cowboys play right now because I think that yeah, that would be yeah. an interesting one. Um, I agree they're not near the first few teams, but I, you know, I would argue that they're one of the better sides in the, the bottom four, but we digress definitely, because yeah. I, like me and you could definitely disagree on the Morris the Morris jab there, and we could go on for a bit more, but we need to move on and talk about some other games. Um, the only other game that I think is a standout to talk about, and it's a standout for the wrong reasons, Brisbane Titans. I mean, if if you want to know how bad it is to be a Titans fan, have a look at the Titans being up by that much and then just absolutely imploding. You know, they, they, they've scored three tries in the first 25 minutes versus their arch rivals, Brisbane. And then it's a complete implosion. I'm just going to hand over to you here. Tell me what you saw in that game because I, honestly, like it's you would hate to be a Titans fan. I actually felt for them watching that. Oh, yeah, it's lucky they don't have any fans because it must suck to follow them. Like <laughs> it's, it's terrible. But um, all jokes aside, sorry, Titans fans. That they um, I knew they were going to lose that. It sounds stupid, but I was like, I reckon they, I reckon they're going to implode here. When it got to even got to ten, it was like I've seen this movie before. How many times have they been up? Um, that their entire gambit is to get up by a lot and lose, or to make really like tragic combat comebacks where they nearly come back from having got 20 behind and they make these really inspirational comebacks that fail by like one try and that's just what they do um it's a big cultural issue there it has to be because you don't you can't get up that far in games if you can't play that's the reality like i look at them and think they're not that good to be frank with you but that aside if that's my personal opinion the fact is you can't always get up by three tries or more and we saw this last year. The, the South game was famous last year with the first half of feeder hat trick and all that stuff. You can't just get up in these games by those margins if you can't play. 
that's the reality, right? The, the, you get, mm. So th- th- it has to be something they're doing and, and how they're, they're training or how they go about their football or, or mentally or whatever it is. But I think there's a big lack of leadership there. Um, I think they've got a young coach who is, I, I don't think, I don't have a lot of time for him. I, I think he, he struggles. Um, I think that, you know, <laughs> I think that they're. Ca- I know uh, Tino gets a lot of a lot of raps, and I'm going to have picked the wrong week to sort of, I guess, say this about him because he he had quite a good game on the weekend, made so many meters and runs. But but he's uh, he his leadership is left wanting in a lot of areas. He's got one of the highest error rates of of, a fo- of forwards in the competition, um, and that's something that I you know to me I, I just don't really understand why that's not called out much there was a the game the week before where that you know they nearly won that game against the sharks and he made three handling errors playing the ball when they were you know when they were within six points of winning that game um coming back mm-hmm. and he makes a lot of runs and he really tries hard but he has a real you know a, to to a burgess standard handling problem like the burgeye the classic error of all three of them doing it. He, he has a lot of those mistakes in him um, to the point that I watch it and go, if this was David Fafida, people would be crucifying him. Um, I think last year he made double the amount of mistakes as Fafida with the same amount of missed tackles. And it doesn't get called out because he came from Melbourne and it's just such an easy media narrative to say he's from a good system and Fafida's on too much money and is lazy. I, I think the thing yeah. with it too, though, is just to jump in on yeah. Tino, because I, I agree with you and we've had these chats before, but I think that the problem is that when you have a look at it, uh, Tino does have a great attitude and I really admire him mm. as a player in a lot of ways, but I agree on the leadership stuff, but he's only 21 and there isn't, when you look at there and go, look, there should be someone else that's the captain and the yeah, leader. Yeah. You look around and you go, well, actually, I don't know who I'll give it to. No, so I, right. I think there, there is a it's a bit of an issue. Like, I agree with all of it, but it's just, it's hard because, and that's not on Tino either. You know, he, he in a perfect world, you wouldn't have no. him as a leader and you wouldn't have him as captain, but how they've recruited and how they've coached and how they've managed is just is bad, and it, it all culminates in these games like we saw in the weekend, where the Broncos scored five unanswered tries to to finish off the last twenty eight minutes of the game. Yeah. They had that short kickoff debacle. They had two sin which bins. was called by their captain, like the like Tino called that, yeah. and he's owned it and good on him. But instead of owning it, he needs to not do it. <laughs> I, mean, oh, well, I, I think that it's I think it's fifty fifty. Like yeah. I also think that he shouldn't be in that position. I no. think it's unfair. Yeah. They're putting him in a position to have yeah. to make those decisions on the week. Because he's a middle forward mm. right in front row for the Maroons and he's twenty one and yeah. he just shouldn't be in that position. And they're putting him in that position because the Titans are a basket case. Yeah. And I, I'll admit that. I think my, my issue with Tino and I I'm pretty hard on him and no one will understand why, but it's just, I find them, I, I, it, like, I really get frustrated with the media narrative as all, is that by yes. all statistical categories, he it makes more mistakes than David Fafita. Um, he, he makes more, more, he misses more tackles. He, he makes more errors in the middle of the field. He drops the ball more often and he contributes to less tries, which is the point of the game. <laughs> and, and I just get really frustrated that one of them is considered this model citizen and is the captain. And the other one is considered like this, just because Mal, this, Mal Meninga decided to pay him 1.2 million or whatever, 1.1. It wasn't his idea. And because of that, he's treated like he's really lazy and he's a problem. And that, that Tino's given this sort of free pass when he, he, he honestly makes a lot of mistakes that Fafita could never get away with. Um, but you're right. It, in, on the other side of that, I, I don't mean he's not a good player because he's really good runner of the football and stuff, but they do have a leadership hole. And and he, a little bit like we're seeing at Caelan Ponger at Newcastle, is a bit older and a bit more experienced, but he's struggling to lead a, a bad team. He's struggling to know how to get them out of it. 
and and Tino doesn't really know how to get them out of it, and he's running the ball a lot, and that that's great, but that's about all he can do because that's what he's good at. But he, he, they're they're really short of leadership, I think, on and off the field. Um, it's a young coach. Uh, Mal has a lot of say in that club, and Mal has never been involved in an administrative role with a successful club. The Raiders were, were terrible when he coached them. Um, and he's gone to the Titans and they haven't got any better, in my opinion, since he, he got there. Um, you know, they certainly, you know, they were very bad when they sort of sacked the last coach and everything else, but they haven't got, they've stagnated pretty badly with this roster and they, they need to do something about it. They're, they're in real, real trouble. And a lot of people had them in the eight at the start of this year. And I, I thought them and Newcastle were going to drop out and nothing I've seen the first half of the year says that I was wrong about that. No, and like to finish mm-hmm. off on that game in the round, like it's important for people to remember that Adam Reynolds was out that game. Yeah. Payne Haas was playing under a fair bit of duress um, and there was all that controversy as well. But have a look at the spine that Brisbane had here to come back from from 18-0 down or whatever it was or 24-4 to or whatever it was. Like They had Walters at nine, Mam, who was playing his second game in his career at seven, Tyson Ooh. Gamble at six, and uh, TMM, you know, T. Marie Martin, that was at number one, who's making a comeback this year and good on him. But like that's all. There's an argument that you know all those guys are, are currently fringe first graders, and they they probably wouldn't make a lot of other sides. So it's it's a really bad spine for you to give up those type of um, those type of leads to. Yeah. And especially under all the circumstances with Adam Reynolds gone and all the Peyton Haas controversy and everything. Like, it's everything. Look, you can look at it on paper and say Brisbane are doing well this year, so you expect them to win by 11-plus versus the Titans. But in reality, watching that game and, and everything in context, it's actually a much worse yeah. loss than what it even looked like. Oh, totally. Um, and, and just to finish off on them, and I, I, just, I don't want to continually uh, sort of nail my colours here, but I'm going to go on one final little comment about the Fafita media coverage and just ask where all where all the people are talking about the fact that he managed to manufacture a try when they were at 11 players in the field. Like, he took down to 11 <laughs> players, and he again, like, went from dummy half, 25 metres out, has, like, unbelievably scored this try and the fact that his entire team can't tackle and short kick off and everything in the second half and threw it away shouldn't cover this it's the sort of thing that i've seen articles again this week saying they've got to like cut his salary like they've got to release him and you're like well i mean they had 11 players on the field and he scored this try that nobody else in the whole comp would score and it's about the fifth time it's happened even this year let alone last year and maybe they could just concentrate on teaching the rest of the team to kick the ball into touch and to tackle people when they get 20 point leads that he sets up <laughs> because that, that, that would then, he would be really useful. Like last year, B South, there was a question, seriously, in the media, they lost to South. Have it, he scored a first cast hat trick. They're up by like 16, 20 points. They lost. And the question that came through was David Fafita didn't have many runs in the second half in the media conference. And you're like, Oh yeah, but he scored three tries. Like maybe in the second half, they could have tackled someone. And it, it comes back to this again, is that their issues are a lot wider than how much they're paying him. He's on too much money, but they have a, you know, that you look through that team, they are really struggling all over the field and they really, really, I can't see the way out of it at the moment for them. I think they're in for a long year. No. And that game, that was the other thing that game showed. They're in a really big hole at the moment and it's going to do, they've worked themselves into it over oh, a good three years and a good rule of thumb in, in probably most sport but definitely in rugby league, is if you work your way into a hole over three years, you can double that many years before you're going to work your way out of it. And that's, you know, it's going to be a long five or six years for the Titans if they don't really smarten up very quickly. But we need to move on to the next topic, and that is the state of origin teams. So 
Obviously, the Origin teams have now been released. We mentioned it at the start of the podcast. And look, it's despite the leakages, there was you know some big news on both fronts. Um, we'll start off with New South Wales because that's probably the most controversial. Obviously, the first the first big thing is that Josh Adokar got got dropped. Now, I'm I'm going to sound like a massive homer, but that's fine. Um, I've said for five years Daniel Tupo has been arguably you know, one of the top couple of wingers in the competition. Uh, he, do, he doesn't he doesn't get ever uh, noticed as much as what he should. He doesn't get the accolades that he should. And that always inevitably happens. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy for him. And I think that's something that, you know, it, it really frustrates me because um, New South Wales and Queensland fans both have something um, inherently wrong with them that I think is quite negative, but it's like polar opposites. New South <laughs> Wales fans like call for blood before a ball's even been kicked and said, oh, well, you know, we've got the worst team in the world. We've lost already. And, you know, they just, they go off half-cocked and, you, you know, the, the series could end up 3-0 and you don't even know because the New South Wales fans just call for blood and they call for blood way too early. And it is a real New South Wales thing and it's a, it's a negative. The Queensland fans, unfortunately, are polar opposite. <laughs> and everybody knows you don't want to be the polar opposite. You want to be in the middle because in the middle of the spectrum is the sweet spot. And, the, the Maroons fans never call for blood. You know, you could have someone drop the ball 15 times in 10 minutes and they'd still say he'll be right because he's an incumbent. You've got to stick loyal, you know, and it's almost like, you know, if, if these two fan bases could just somehow merge together to create this blue Queensland fan, that would almost be the right mindset that you'd want. But unfortunately, we're not there yet. And certainly with the Blues, you know, everyone's jumped up in arms with Daniel Tupo. The media's jumped onto it as well, which, as you know, they would. They've made it very controversial. And look, I'm going to go in about here, not for Tupo, um, but to say, you know, I, I really think that it's been really overstated at this point. In a vacuum, I, I can understand Josh Adokar not being dropped. I would certainly be happy not to drop him and for him to be playing. But at the same time, I just I really fail to see why there's this huge argument of the guy that's come in for him. Because at the end of the day, you brought a guy in that's, that's playing better this year, that's been arguably one of the top winners for the last five years and hasn't had the opportunity. And he's the current one that's playing better. You know, it's not like it's a it's one of those big bolters where you get someone that's played, you know, a few first grade games like a Selwyn Cobo taking Josh Adokar's spot or something. Daniel Tupo is a premiership winner. He's coming up to, he's 30 years old. He's been in several grand finals. You know, he's got all the runs on the board and he's been playing better than Adokar by a significant margin. So I feel for Adokar and I certainly see, a, you know, I would be happy again for him not to have been dropped. But the guy that's coming in for him is better. So it, it's hard to argue with the decision, um, at least to the point that I think the media and NRL 360 and Wide World of Sports have gone on and on about it to say that it's just, you know, it's this massive snubbing. It's a, the, Some fans are saying it's the biggest snubbing of all time and it's, you know, it's, it, we're not going to live or die by the, the better current winger taking the incumbent spot on the wing. So I just, that, that's obviously one of the biggest stories of the New South Wales team at the moment. Am I being a massive homer with this, Luke? Because I do love Daniel Tupa. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's always dangerous getting on a podcast to talk about uh, Daniel Tupo um, with you. Um, but <laughs> no, uh, look, Dan, Daniel Tupo, like, first, I, I, if Daniel Tupo is in the best two wingers in New South Wales, there'll never be a problem because he, he is, you know, th- that's not a weak spot whenever he's there because he's been in the top five wingers in the game for like 10 years now, um, you know, thereabouts, and, and usually in the top three or four. Um, if you ask me who the top two wingers are at the moment, it would probably be Adokar and Toto. So 
I, I wouldn't, I didn't expect him to get picked, um, but I'm not bothered by him being in the team. Um, I think, look, I, I don't have a huge problem with the decision. I went back and had a look at some of that age cars things after that. So firstly, against St. George on the weekend, he directly let in two tries and was involved. Was in really bad, so, those two yeah, ones. Yeah, the two of them were shockers. Like one of them, just for a guy, Jeremy Marshall King turned around and started baking him for it. And I think once you get baked like by Jeremy Marshall King when you're, you know, Josh Adokar, <laughs> who's one of the biggest, I think, you know, I don't think, I just suspect um, Marshall King doesn't go baking players of that standing in the game unless they really sort of, you know, have done something fairly bad. He was really giving him the what the hell and stuff. And two of them were very bad. A third one was arguably his fault. Um, and I went back and had a look at the Cobo and Coates games and he scored two tries against Cobo, but Cobo put two on him and he got caught out of position a bit and he got done in the air a bit and, and Coates did him as well. So admittedly, he's playing in a bad team. So, you know, Coates doing him isn't a huge surprise because Melbourne were going to put on a lot of points and a lot of overlaps that make it hard for a winger. But he's had two very bad games against the Queensland wingers and a very bad defensive game the day of selection, which I suspect that Freddie might have seen some of that before that day. You know, I don't, I make a habit of not watching too many Canterbury games. So um, I haven't watched week in week out but I suspect that there might have been a few more things like on Sunday where he's let he's let himself down in defense um the only thing I will say with Tupo is that uh, one thing with the New South Wales squad overall and I, I won't pick it point by point apart but Tupo there he has Freddie I think had a really good habit over the years of picking it's easy to say he picks people in form but what he's also done is he's picked people without worrying about their downside is he's tended to pick people that might bring out a play that wins you the game. Um, a lot of old coaches, Laurie Daly and the ones before them, always worry about losing. They're always like, this guy won't let you down. That's how both Scott ends up in the centres and stuff like that. Oh, this guy won't let us down. Um, and Freddie's made a real habit of picking players with upside. He picks guys who can win the game. Like he's, he's picked, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have picked Latrell uh, when he did pick Latrell. It seems obvious now. He's picked Turbo out of position. He went and gave out Okari's debut when that was controversial. And he's done a lot of that over his time. Is just pick guys who he thinks can scare the opposition and, you know, make that one play that wins you the game. And heaps of the games have come down to that. There's moments in the game where something opens up and we have the players to take advantage. And I do feel he's backed off a little bit from it this year. He's a little bit more worried by Queensland and he has gone a bit safer. And I don't love that as a philosophy. Um, I think he's been at his best when he's just picked guys that are scary. And that's usually been guys like Ado Carr because if there's space, he just scores. Um, and, and, you know, it's been... In a way, he's had to do that because he's lost Latrell and Tommy and Queensland look a lot better than they have other years. But yeah, there's just a little bit of a hint there that he's been a bit more conservative than I've ever seen him before. I'm surprised to see guys like Tyson Frizzell in the extended squad. Um, and, and I was surprised a little bit by, by Tupu, who is so safe and so good, but I thought he would go with the pace of Adokar. So, you know, we'll wait and see. But I think it's a relatively good side and it should be a good series. Yeah, and the other thing as well that's obviously been mentioned a few times, although not enough, is um, one thing that I was going to say is the defence, which you picked up on Ado Car mm. when Tupo's very good in that regard, but also the the height differences. You know, I think when you've got Coates mm. and Selwyn Cobbo there, it, it's an immediate worry that Queensland are just going to kick to those guys and there's going to be some issues in the air and Daniel Tupo doesn't have those issues. So when you put it all together, you know, look, I think the bits and pieces, you know, make a fairly convincing mm. story that you've picked... New South Wales' most informed winger this year. He's a guy that's got huge experience, big game experience, won grand finals. He's in one of the a, a pretty quality side. 
And he's also a guy that's six foot six and able to combat what the other opposition's going to throw at you. And he's in much better form than the guy that's the incumbent. So it's not it's not this shocking narrative that I think a lot of the media is throwing out there. I can understand Adokar being disappointed. I can understand fans being disappointed because Adokar, you know, could be, could very well be there, but yeah, I don't think it's a big deal. It's certainly not going to win or lose the game for us, but Jack Whiten at four is the other controversial one. Um, And I'm going to just say outright, I think, I think that Stephen Crichton is going to start at center and, and Whiten's going to be at 14. And that makes it a lot more palatable because I, I think that Stephen Crichton should have been the first centre picked. Uh, and I think that'll be end up end up being the case. I'd also say that I preferred Hines, not at 18, but at 14. Mm. But I, I think that there is um, good enough arguments from Freddie on why White is a, a 14 that he wants because White can go into the back row and play there. And he might just feel that, that with his game plan, that's, that's what he's after. And, and White has actually for all his faults, had a much better season last year because last year he was absolutely awful. Uh, he's, you know, it's a low bar, but he's played much better this year. And he is a guy that has actually, I've been reasonably impressed with in, in some origin games. So, you know, it's it, it's controversial if he does end up starting at four, but if Stephen Crichton moves there and he's the 14, I sort of see that as probably, you know, definitely palatable and I understand where Freddie's coming from. So where do you see that move? And also I'll throw even the Katoni Stags one out there. Like I... I thought that it should have been Campbell Graham and Stephen Crichton and then Daylight because my real problem with Katoni Staggs is that he's, had, he's played three good games out of 12 and unfortunately the, the games that, that aren't his great good games are really just invisible games where he's nowhere to be seen and I think that that's an issue because when you've got these state of origin games, you know his big thing is he's a great X factor and he's a guy that can score some good tries and make some breaks, which Campbell Graham can't do as well. But in this type of origin arena, you don't really get those opportunities as much, which highlights the importance of the other stuff even more. Campbell Graham's defense, Campbell Graham's work rate is double. Campbell Graham's hit-ups is double what Stags can do. So all those sort of things become even more important. So those center spots, Luke, you know, how did you feel about those when you saw him named? I don't like White in there. I think that's a mistake now. Um, I think he was capable of playing there a few years ago. I think he's a bit slow now, and I just don't like it. I I, I think centres become a position where we've got back, thankfully, to the we've got past the error of having people who are a bit stodgier, which is what Jack is now. He's a solid, hard tackling, hard runner, but you you want people who break the game open there, who you can throw the ball um, to when not much is doing. You can throw them the ball early, and they can just get you a try, um, and that's Crichton definitely. Um, I think that I, I wouldn't have Whiten at all. It's not a criticism of him. He's fine off the bench. But I'm, I'm sick of this middle narrative of having to have your utility play lock forward. You have three other bench positions, all of which are big minute, big minute players in the NRL. You've got three other bench spots and they will all of them play upwards of 60 minutes in the NRL. Use them to play in the middle and pick a utility that does something to actually cover you in case of people going down. But, the, sure, Jack Whiten can play lock, but who the F would want him to, you know? That, that's what people miss. It, it's, it started with Carmichael Hunt and, um, you know, and then Cooper Cronk started doing it and all this stuff. And you go, yeah, okay, they can come on and play lock, but why? Like, why don't play someone good at lock who's already there? Why don't put Ryan Madison on at lock for 10 minutes longer? And, 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 and I don't mean that's your narrative, but it's the narrative they come up with. And I'll, I'll tell you why it's big this time. It's because by all means, if he, if he, if Nico Hines doesn't exist, by all means, pick Jack White in there and bring him on at lock if no one gets hurt because he can do that because he's a, a good utility. But Nico Hines is really special because Nico Hines is the first time I can ever think of where he covers all the normal positions you might expect. Like he can play 
fullback. He could play in the centers. Um, he could play in the wing at a pinch, but he would play centers and he'd move a center out and that's fine. He, he could play, a, you know, the passing lock role or whatever if he had to. He probably wouldn't bother. He'd pinch hit at hooker as well as any other utility does. But in the era of the HIAs, at what point has there been a player who can do all of that who is also a top five at the moment NRL halfback, like a genuinely top-level NRL halfback who can actually come on? If Nathan Cleary gets hurt at the moment in this system, we are running Luai and Whiten. But we could have 75 minutes of that if Cleary gets knocked in the head making a tackle in the first half, or we have the opportunity to have Nico Hines, who is in the top five this year, halfbacks comfortably in the NRL, go into there, who also happens to play every other position. That just doesn't happen. We've never had that option. Hunt's close because he plays hooker and, and halfback, but but what sort of like the, Hines covers every position and is in the lead NRL half. And it's just Nico Hines is one of the best utility Ep- options oh. that any any state has had for yeah a number uh, number of years. I can't even remember anyone as good as him as far as the cup because he's actually no, played it's in a top team as a utility off Melbourne's bench and covered. Yeah. Both half positions and fullback, and he's 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 been named to start at the centre spot as well. Yeah. So yeah. he he can do all that. So I'm all aboard the Nico Hines train. Yeah. He, he's one of my favourite players this year, and one of my favourite players in the NRL right now. But in saying that, you know, I I, I don't disagree with what you said about you know there's definitely you don't need you don't need your 14 to be able to go in the middle. Um, but I think for certain game plans, maybe you want to. And one of those one of those things that Freddie might be thinking about is that he actually he wants to make sure that he plays. What a lot that number 14 he wants to make sure with his minutes rotation that he's got the minutes shared around, or maybe he doesn't want them to get buggered, or maybe he's got a plan for one. I'm happy to wait and see how yeah, that unfolds. I, I can't think of a single game ever where the 14, um, oh, okay, actually, I can. Caelan Ponga had a really good game at 14 for Queensland. I'll put it to you that in the entire time this has existed, which I think it was pretty much invented by Carmichael Hunt when they started using Carmichael Hunt on the bench, ever since then, Queensland have always played their next halfback. On the bench, like Cherry Evans, Cronk, all of them played lock. Um, we've done it with Jack Bird as a utility. We've done it with um, Reynolds. We've done it with White. And I'll put it to you that apart from the one game Ponga had, nobody has ever had a memorable game coming on at lock. And I'm not saying don't do it. Uh, if, that, if your best player can't get on any other way, by all means do it. But you can't leave Nico Hines out because, oh, we want Jack White to play lock. No player has come off the interchange bench in that role and done anything ever that is memorable and where you said they had a great game it does not happen they always come on pass the ball for five minutes beat a tackle and sit back down they're they're never involved in the game in any meaningful way it's never happened well i mean maybe we're both wrong as well and maybe (laughs) it will start with white and center and if that happens you know i I don't like the pick of the center no neither do i (laughs) but um it does solve it does solve you know what you're upset about right now with the number 14 because crichton can go on and play in the back line and whatever. And they do obviously have the options yeah. um, to move people like White and around in other yeah, people in the back line and whatever. So it's got to be Nico. It's got to be Nico. I, I really like Nico. Mistake. So I'm, I'm yeah. all aboard with that yeah. um, as far as it being Nico, um, but I'm happy to wait and see. Um, yeah. look, a positive out of it, you know, I, look, I was not a positive, but I was really upset for Angus Crichton. I really thought that he deserved to be there despite being down on form over someone mm. like Tarek Sims, despite Sims always playing well in the blue jersey, I think, and I really like that. But um, and what did, what it did do is it opened the way for someone like Ryan Madison to get a go. And I do think that Ryan Madison, you know, was a big up-and-comer. I used to love him as a player coming through the Roosters. And he, he sort of he got on the nose a little bit, I think, um, certainly from some of the, the attitude toward, at the Tigers yeah. and, you know, him leaving there and then certainly some accounts 
Uh, there were definitely unfounded rumours. Like, I don't want to start new rumours, but there was, you know, unfounded rumours in the media and Fox and everything. You could see it where they they questioned how well he fit into some of the teams that he's been in and stuff. And he kind of fell by the wayside the last two years to the point that he was almost like Tavita Pengai Jr. almost blacklisted for the last couple of years because you just didn't hear about him coming in. And I'm really happy that based on his form and even though he's been off the bench, his form really warranted him getting picked. And I'm really happy that he did because he deserves it. So I thought that he was a really yep. good pick um, that we didn't really expect because I didn't think that he was going to get a go. I thought he might be in the reserves, but I didn't think he was going to get a go in the 17. Yep. I think him and um, Regan Campbell-Gillard both earned a spot. Um, I thought... Uh, Maddo has been really good this year and he, he's, you know, much apart from anything else, he's bloody been concussed that much the last two years. It dropped him over a lot of momentum. Like there's a lot of times he's played three mm. good games and been out for six weeks or four weeks and come back. And that's really hurt him as well because he, he was at the Tigers was really strong and then he was good in his first year at Para. but they've stumbled onto something really good playing him in the middle. I think that suits him better. Um, he's fine on an edge, but he's sort of, he's so big and, his main skill is that he's really big, got a high work rate, and he's got a nice pass. And that's really these days suited to middle forward uh, at lock. And he looks really good there. And on an edge, he's sort of got to wait for the ball to come to him. And he's not that dynamic a runner. So I think him as a middle who can play edge is a lot better than an edge that can play middle. And um, he deserves it to play really, really good football. I'm really impressed with him. And, and Campbell Gillard, I think, has been good this year. But I think last year... Towards that, he was just exceptional in the finals for Parramatta. Um, he beat the living hell out of out of the Saifides and Clemmer in in the first week and really just dominated them. He was very very good against Penrith in a game that they were very unlucky to to not win. I think we'll all remember that one for a while. And and mm. and he was really good the back half of that year. And he's a guy who got to go a few years ago, and I thought was fairly average when he when he played for New South Wales. Uh, yep. I thought he was a bit overrated at Penrith. Frankly, he went to Parramatta, and I thought oh, I'm not big on this guy. And the last two years, he's been really strong, and he was really really strong in big games at the end of last year. And I sort of thought, you know what, I think he's earned another go. Um, I think that he would have been picked over Daniel Safidi anyway, if fit. Um, and I wouldn't have argued with that. I would have thought that he, he's earned that right now to be in and around that team. And if he comes in and doesn't go well, then he probably won't get a third go. But if you play really, really well for a long period and play well in big games, you deserve a shot. And he's done that. Yep. So another controversial one for the New South Wales Blues was the omission of Jake Trevojevic. Now, there's obviously a few guys, Luke, in that forward pack that are a little bit contentious, um, particularly someone like Sims, uh, although the same argument can be made about Sims' inclusion as what people are making for Jake Trevojevic, where Sims has, you know, always performed for New South Wales before. Um, and I'd probably say with Sims as well, like if you're talking about someone like him, one of the things is at least he brings quite a bit of regression as well. And he kind of, it's a bit of a cliche, but he's one of those origin players. But, you know, I... I, I allowed you to be indulged earlier with your um, rant on the Titans and a few different things. So just just indulge me for about two to three minutes because this is going to be my rant for this podcast, okay? Um, the, whether it's the Matty John Show, Channel 9 News or Fox Sports or 360 or whatever you'd look at, every single media outlet I have seen has been absolutely scathing in the Blues, leaving Trevojevic out for a variety of reasons. Okay, I absolutely do not get it. Um, and I will say, like we've already discussed, that Freddie was a little bit controversial with some selections and, and people disagreed with some and whatever. Like, I actually think that you need to give credit to him because this is a reasonably brave one where it would have been really easy to put Jake Trevojevic in. But 
he's made the hard call to let a guy go who's been in the side for many, many years now uh, and has, is like someone that everybody loves having there and also all the fans and everyone loves. So he's a great guy, Jake Trevojevic. So it was a really hard call for him to cut him. But look, l- let me just, just rant away, okay? Just just hang with me, Luke, all right? I'm with you. <laughs> well, I reckon that you might end up agreeing with me on this, but I'm keen to see. Um, I think it was absolutely the right call. And I will go as far to say that people are saying that, you know, he's he deserves to be there. He's always performed before. You've got to stick strong and whatever. Jake Trevojevic was passed it two, two years ago. So to me, how many seasons does somebody want to get goodwill for? Because I reckon if you've gotten two years of it, that's about enough now where you can say, all right, you're, you're basically done, mate. And this is nothing against Jake Trevojevic. I think he's a tremendous player, a tremendous teammate. He's had a tremendous career. He's at the end of it pretty much. So... It's completely fine, like it's normal. But I, I was laughing because they were making a big deal about how you know Jake, Jake Trevojevic has only missed seven tackles in his Origin career, and he's such a good tackler with his technique. It's always easy, Luke, to focus on the positives. But I tell you what, they didn't focus on any other stats. So let me put the other stats up unbiasedly. Okay, this season Jake Trevojevic has played twelve games. He scored zero tries. He's making 6.8 hit-ups per game. That's an 80-minute player making one run every 12 minutes as a middle forward. He has one offload in 12 games, and he's got one tackle break in 12 games. You know, that is not somebody that has even average stats, even remotely average. That is really, really poor. And people will say that, you know, or, you know, he's different because of how he plays. He passes before the line and all this. That's fine, but it's not what New South Wales needs, and it's not you know, one of the top guys. Other thing that I just lamented when everyone was going off about this, particularly on the Maddie John show, was um, people, they were saying that, you know, he should be there and he's a great locker room guy and all this stuff. Like, you know, great, you know, everyone loves him. He, you know, he makes the camp better and everything. I could go in and make the camp better. I'm a great guy to be around the team. It doesn't mean I should have a New South Wales Blues jersey, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah. it really is reaching for me. And, like, sure, he's been there before, but I, I just think the last thing is, if you have a look at his position, you know, he's a number 13. you got Murray, you got Yao, you got Madison, you got Radley, all not even above him, like, well and truly, unarguably above him. You know, you've got half a dozen players pretty easily that are ahead of him. And then you could look at trying to transition him at prop. Okay, great. Uh, he's not going to be there instead of Regan Campbell-Gillard. He's not going to be there instead of Paulo. He's not going to be there... Uh, instead of paying Haas, you know, like he's got guys in front of him everywhere, well and truly. And not only that, you really want Jake Trevojevic to play a prop where he's making one hit up every 12 minutes, can't bend the line, can't break a tackle, can't offload. Uh, and he's really, no one's going to be scared about tackling Jake Trevojevic in origin. And no one's going to be scared about Jake Trevojevic tackling them in origin. So to me, it's just, it's, it's just a really poor narrative, you know, and I think that it puts unfair pressure and criticism on the Blues camp to have not picked him because it was it would have been the right decision two years ago. But I think he's gotten goodwill for like two years now and, and enough's enough. Yeah, uh, I've got to agree largely with that. It, he's been, it's, it is a cheap narrative that's been going on for some time because he's a very likeable bloke. He was, he was a, a very much a star when he came through and he's from the most sort of beloved family in the game now because everyone loves Tom and his older brother and all that sort of stuff. But the bottom line is he just hasn't been at the races for a while now in terms of an elite player. Um, like you said, all the lock forwards named are better than him and and he just doesn't even suit the position anymore. Um, the, the sort of the three things that 
you need to do as a lock forward or the three ways you can play is you can be a power forward uh, like a Nathan Brown or a, or a Jason Taumalolo, um, powerful runner that sort of bumps people off and bends the line and, and we all know it's not that. Uh, you can be a guy who passes the ball but in terms of actually assisting tries and, and, and unlocking the attack that way and getting try assists and line break assists and that sort of thing like a Isaiah Yo or a, uh, a Radley and sometimes a Cameron Murray and, and he's not that. Uh, either he passes the ball a lot, but he just hasn't set up any tries and line break assists for years now. Like he really hasn't. He used to be bread and butter for him, and he's not doing that. Uh, and the third one is is to be a workhorse and to make a lot of tackles and a lot of runs, like a Ruben Cotter. And he's not doing that either, as you mentioned with his hit up rate. He's just not, he's not actually doing the workhorse stuff either. Um, and the absolute elite locks, which I think there's two of, which are Yo and Murray. Uh, a, both in the New South Wales side, and they're actually two of those three things we just mentioned. They're both able to ball play and work horses, and they're both in the team. So when you look at the New South Wales side, uh, do we have someone that's going to make a lot of tackles? Yeah, we're going to have Murray in there. We're going to have Yo in there. And so what else are we going to do with him? Uh, like you said, we can move him to prop where he's played before, but he doesn't hit the ball up. And, and you really these days want your pops to find their front and play the ball quickly, especially when you've got Damien Cook. If you look at having Damien Cook as a dummy half or even if, uh, Coruscant if Cook was out you want them to get out of dummy half and play and you want them to play for, quickly for Tedesco and quickly for Cleary and, and that's not going to happen with him and he's a great guy and he's been a very good player and, and it's an interesting question as to why he's dropped off the last couple of years and you'd have to think that the, the answer to that is you know some of that might be in, internal uh, we saw a lot of this with Aaron Woods Aaron Woods has had a similar career he was very elite early in his career it just got worse and worse. Um, so there might be an element of that to it. And the other thing is that it does coincide with Des Hasler going back there. So, you know, um, ever since Des has got there, Jake's stats have just completely wiped out. Um, and he has not been effective, particularly as an above-average player for Manly. And he's on too much money there for what he's actually doing now. If you put his stats against some of the average lock forwards in the competition that nobody knows who they are and, you know, um, aren't really talked about, Jake isn't doing any more than they are other than he remains a very good hitter when he tackles people he's a very good defender um so i really don't know what everyone's reaction to this is other than just that they like him a lot and he's a big name i think there's a lot of casual fans who just know that he's a good player um by listening to the media and everything so we're just shocked that that name value isn't there because there's no way he's a better player than ryan madison at the moment um there's no way he's a better player than most. No. Than, uh, like I, don't even, I, I just named the top guys. Like I mm. reckon like you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about the average locks. I don't even think he's up there with any of them. And like it's a lot of it too. I think the, you're right with the fans with the name pay you, but with the media, I think it's just that he's such a good bloke. And like I don't, I don't doubt that he's such a good bloke and everything, but it's not a reason to hand someone an origin jersey again after they've had a couple of years of mediocrity oh, already. I think a heap of them don't watch a heap of games. I really don't. I think that they watch the game they report on and they're done with it. Because if you watched every week, you know, you know, um, even from playing super coach, you can notice so markedly the decline. You can't tell if someone's a good player from super coach overly, but you can certainly tell that if you go over his stats for the last three years, he just doesn't run the ball anymore. He doesn't even make as many tackles as he used to. And he he went from a guy who used to make a line break assist every week and a try assist every second week. He used to have his 30 tackles, his 10 runs. That was 50, 60 points. And then he would be a, a line break assist one week and the other week, every second week, it's a try assist and an LBA and that gets you to 80 points. And, and he just has gone from doing that every second week to not doing it at all. Um, and whether it's him or whether it's Des Hasler, I don't know. But I'll tell you what, if it's not him, you might want to have a word to his coach because he is wrecking his <laughs> career, honestly. I, I think he's been completely ineffective 
ever since he got there. Um, and he's probably not alone. I think Marty Topowska has gone backwards too. Um, and if it's a style of play that Des wants them to play with, um, yeah, look, getting on topic, I don't know how successful it's been because they've had one good run in three years and the rest of the time they've been pretty mediocre. So, um, you know, I think the, the question that really should be being put is why has he dropped off so far? And there should actually be some some criticism of him from a playing perspective. And I think a lot of other guys would have copped that. And to go back to my earlier stuff, but David Fafita's your example, not to go on about it again, but if he was doing what Jake Trevojevic was, he'd be shot. He would be shot. Oh, he would that. be. He would cop it in the media. And it is one of those things where, like, and it is one of the things, you know, the taglines of this podcast I say often is that it's, it's completely unbiased. We're, me and whoever's on with me will call it as it is. That's what it's meant to be, completely unfiltered, unbiased. And I think that one of the biases in the media is that if there's a guy that gives good interviews and is a really nice guy and gets along with everyone and everybody likes, then they do get less criticism. And you see it with coaches as well, right? Like yeah. if there's some prickly coaches, they cop it a lot more. I mean, how much does Ricky Stewart cop it all the time? You know, like it's the same with players, you know. And if you've got like a bad rap sheet or whatever, like, you know, someone like Matt Lodge, you know, is another middle forward. He could, he could do whatever for the next five years. Like he could save cats in trees for old ladies every week and do all this great stuff and do community service every time he's not training. And everyone else would still look at his rap sheet and still hate Matt Lodge. You know, and look, that might be fair or unfair, but it's it's just how it is. And with Jake Travoyevic, he's got the benefit of you know, being uh, Turbo's brother and also being really likable and a great guy and someone who's given good service. So because of that, you know, he he just gets off scot-free almost. And it's not particularly fair. And I don't think it's looking in his performance very well. No, I'll I'll tell you, you're right. I've just gone and had a Google while we're on the phone to try and see what money he's on. And according to Rothfield and everyone, the last deal they did was 900,000 for Jake. And I'll tell you what, uh, that like th- there should be some serious criticism of that because they are really short in the forwards. It cost them for newer Blake, who's an elite forward, uh, to Powers going. They're really weak in there and they are not getting $900,000 of value out of him. And I'm not surprised at all he didn't make the Blues. Um, he, he's one of those guys that if he had got picked, he's never going to give you an overly clear reason not to keep picking him because he doesn't actually stuff up. Like he won't do anything that's – he won't make a mistake and he won't miss his tackle. So you're never going to get this horrid like a Justin Hodges debut game where he throws the ball across the end goal a few times to go and get himself dropped. He'll never make a highlight yeah. bad play. So if he's there, you never get angry about it because you're like, oh, well, he won't do anything wrong. But that's not the point of picking the representative team. You are trying to pick people who also do something really right and actually win the game. And th- th- there is people that will run the ball harder than him. And there's people that will run the ball more often than him. There's people who pass better than him. Um, and he's an elite defender. There's no denying that his tackling technique is wonderful. But there's other people that can make tackles. And you've got interchanges. So you can bring them on and off and keep them fresh. And I, I don't think it's worth it at the moment just for his defence. He's, he's never been a guy that's been able to, like, he's got decent size. Like, he's about, I think he's about six foot two, 708 kilos or something. Like, his size seems decent on paper, but he's never really used his size. He's never been one of those guys in the middle that's been able to use that size. And he's certainly not chiseled or like a Marty Tapao type of build or anything like that. So, He's never intimidated, and that's never really been his game. To your point earlier, I think what's happened is some of it's Dez, but I just think some of it is you do get some of these forwards, especially, you know, it's talked about a lot with middle forwards that, um, and front row forwards especially, but they, they sometimes they come and bloom late, and they end up having like a five-year peak because they sort of come through at 25, 26, and then go through until 31 as being a really good player. Jake was good early, and, you know, he's now 28. So you can argue that he's actually had a reasonable peak 
and then had the normal after five years sort of drop off for a middle 40, just did it a bit earlier. And I think going back to his size, like he was never someone who was going to be able to go in and be a guy that sort of put the ball away, became a bit of a meters guy or, or anything and used his size. Because even when he was running well a few years ago, it was like agility uh, movement at the line, a bit of, you know, a little bit of speed for considering his size. I don't think he's got that anymore. So because he doesn't have that, and he isn't a guy that can use size or strength and he doesn't have any power. He's really got nothing when he runs the ball. And he's basically, and this is no disrespect to Aiden Tolman, but, you know, Aiden Tolman's very meat and potatoes and he does his job. He's very Aiden Tolman now, you know? And, and it's yeah. just, I just think a lot of that is just, it's on him, but it, like, it's not his fault. He's just gotten older and his game's leaving him. You know, everybody's, that happens to everyone. You know, the great Jonathan Thurston for the Maroons, his last two years weren't very good. No one can do it forever. Yeah, there's probably some truth to that. I, I think there's a lot of similarities to Aaron Woods. I really do. I think Aaron Woods was uh, was elite when he started and he just lost 5% every year to the point that you, one day you wake up and go, why has he been in the rep teams the last three years? Like he shouldn't have been there for three seasons now. Um, and, and it's a bit similar with Jake. That Yeah, Jake didn't have a lot to lose. But as long as he was – he had a very clever pass when he used to go to the line and, you know – if you just lose that bit of agility and, and, and movement and that threat of running the ball, then it becomes harder to put guys in space because they, they, they don't feel the need to mark up on you as much. And that's probably true to that. But, but, yeah, they're the two that come to mind in recent years where people forget that Aaron Woods was a really, really good player when he came through at the Tigers. Because oh, he's the best runner in the world for about two years <laughs> at least. By the time he retires, he won't have been any good for about seven. And I hope Jake, I hope they do turn it around. I, I hope he, because I, I really like him. And, you know, he's certainly got a lot to offer as a footballer, but I, I just don't understand um, the level of outrage about him not getting picked. And I don't think they're particularly going to miss him. And it's one reason I really hope we win, because it'll become a really soft narrative to say they mm. missed Jake and, and that they missed um, uh, at Ocar if they don't win. And it'll become a bit you know, cheap and, and sort of, basically just rubbish, but that will become a gold-plated media narrative in the build-up to week two, game two, if that happens. Yeah, there's no way that Jake's going to make a difference either way. Um, so, But the guy that replaces him, like a Madison, can make a difference being there instead of him. So I really don't see any issue with it at all. Um, but, you know, we, we can't go on about Jake too much. None of it's against Jake. And look, there's one of those things to finish up on him is there's nothing wrong with your rep career ending after such a stellar rep career that he's had. Like he's had a stellar rep career, big numbers in representative jerseys for the Blues and for Australia. There's nothing wrong with an ending and you just being a really good club player because that's what happens with these guys. And he can be a really important club player for Manly. So nothing wrong with that. Now let's let's just hit the nail on the head right now with the reserves before we move over to the Queensland team. There's a, a lot of controversy about the reserves. A lot of people saying, you know, Freddie's mad looking at jerseys 20 to 22, right? Now, look, Apisai Coruscant was never going to play. He, To me, he's been picked there to basically mirror Cook um, to make sure that he's there for the training, whatever. And if Cook goes down, there is no other hooker for New South Wales. So he'd have to come in. So having him in Jersey 22 is, it really doesn't make any difference. Joseph Suali, um, to me, it was, again, never going to play. And he's you know, one of those quintessential development opportunity guys to get him into camp. Freddie's done it with so many players over the years, you know, and in fact, both Queens, both, you know, New South Wales and Queensland have done this. It's, it, it, it's a fine pick. If you're going to give him a, a going oh. camp, he's done it with Colin Matangi. He's done it with all these other guys. Like if he wants to do that with Suali as, you know, it, so be it. I, I really don't think it makes so much difference. Jacob Saifidi, um, I will relent on a little bit and say it's, 
a little bizarre to me. I kind of thought that it must be a development thing. Um, and, you know, he's, he's in his mid-20s now, but that's when, you know, front rowers sort of come through and stuff. So maybe that's sort of the thought. But, you know, I, I don't love Jacob Saifidi as a representative player at all. I probably don't even think that he should be developed there like a Suwali who's a young talent. But in saying that, what I did do, Luke, is that I went through and went, similar to your your talk on Regan Campbell-Gillard, you know, we've got Campbell-Gillard, we've got Payne Haas, we've got Junior Paul. Who are the other front rowers that we have? And I sort of looked and went, oh, it's, it's it's a real bugbear of mine that these days there just is a is just hardly any front rowers coming through. And when you look at New South Wales, it just really isn't any. So there is potential there that maybe they're worried and they're, they're wanting to start to develop some front rowers coming through because when you have a look around the league, there really isn't very many for New South Wales and even for Queensland, you know, when we get to that team, they've got Tino playing at front row. Um, their bench front rowers, Lindsay Collins, that there isn't a huge amount of front rowers in the game just with how it's been played and how it's sort of coming through the last sort of five years. So maybe that makes a little bit of sense there, but certainly Suali and Coruscant, I don't think it's controversial. They're never going to play. Um, Saifidi, you know, I really had to think about it a little bit yeah. Um, firstly, I, I think Coruscant's a no-brainer. Of course, he should be there. And you can actually make an argument that he's a better player than Cook now. And particularly if you're going to pick Luai and Cleary. Uh, I'm not saying I'm dropping Cook. But if this was the first game of Origin ever played, then there was no incumbency. I think there's every chance Apisai Coruscant would be pick, picked over Damien Cook now. Um, that's different to saying you should drop Cook for him. Um, but I'll put that out there. Appy is a gun. And he plays with the two players in the spine. So, of course, he would be there. He's the backup hooker. And he would probably be genuinely pressuring Cook for that spot. He did last year and he will this year. Um, the other two, Suwali, uh, people are so dumb. Like, Suwali is obviously not going to play. They're obviously not saying he's better than Ad- than Adokar <laughs> or anything like that. And if Daniel Safidi was to... Uh, sorry, Daniel Safidi. If Daniel Tupu was to do his um, hamstring tomorrow, they will call Adokar into camp. They will not play Suwali. He's not going to yep. play. This is not going to happen. Um, with Safidi, um, yeah, there's a couple of things to that. Is uh, you know, a few people have said that to me and, and I've been a bit like, I wasn't expecting to see him there, but I was like, okay, so who are you picking instead? And no one's got any great, like everyone's like, oh, Jake Travojevic or David Klemmer. And you're like, why would you take David Klemmer or Jake Travojevic into freaking origin camp to not play now? Like what's, you know, like they're, they're not going to get anything out of being in there. Um, they've played, they're experienced representative players. So you're not going to pick them as your 23rd or 22nd origin player in the camp um the second is that jacob obviously if they are looking at structures and how they play he is the twin brother of the player that was you know um won their medal the last year or the year before for like sort of being their best player amongst the players so he does play a very Mm. similar role to someone who's been successful in there and the third thing is i i don't think he will play and i think he's still a little bit off but i mean i did say last year that i thought he was capable of playing state of origin everyone thought that was dumb um i said at the end of the year he was playing better than daniel and uh, David Clemmer and people thought it was dumb. It wasn't. He was playing better and he's in this year. And I mean, Freddie's noticed what I saw. He, he's not that far below uh, Daniel at the very least. And Clemmer's oh, he's, been, better than, he's better than Daniel this year. Yeah, well, that, that's true. But as overall, he's not that far behind Daniel, who was the best player in, in the front row. If there was an Australian side pick last year, Daniel Safiti would have been in it at the end of the year um, after his origin series. And and with Clemmer's been the Knights' best prop this year by a fair way. But but there is plenty of games where Jacob plays better than him. So I, I don't think he should be in the team. I wasn't demanding he get picked. But um, there's a little bit, there is a little bit of anti-Sydney biased or, or the anti-Sydney not looking at what goes on out of side Sydney from some people in New South Wales because Jacob is actually quite a good player and he's quite a lot better 
than a lot of players that are in Sydney that get pretty pumped up because they play for the right teams. There's a lot of guys with bigger names that he's a better player than. Um, so I'm not worried by him being there and he wouldn't make my final side. And again, um, you know, he might come onto the bench if they if COVID went through camp and two front rowers got hurt. But if they were picking a team two and a few guys got hurt, I think they would still pick a Clemmer or a Gerbo over the top of him. I don't think he would get rolled into the team for game two if we had two or three guys hurt. I think you would see Trevojevic or Clemmer brought back. Yeah, I agree with that as yeah. well. And it's just, a, look, it's the, uh, first of all, a lot of great hot takes in there for Luke. He's probably going to get yeah. uh, the old-fashioned hate mail, but it'll be on social Whatever. media. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, uh, yeah, 100%. Like, you've got to understand that those reserves, that 18 and 19 are the guys that might actually play. The other guys aren't going to. But... They're not going to get picked, you know. Like, it's not, it doesn't. The Sawali thing's the big one. It was driving me insane reading that stuff on the internet. You're like, mate, nobody's saying he's better than Adokar. Just calm down. He's not going to play. <laughs> no, he's not. And you'd see, you'd 100% see that if somebody pulled out, Adokar would come yeah. in like Tupo. Need to take a quick break from the NRL All Stars podcast just to chat about the sponsor. Top Sport. Top Sport are a fantastic sponsor of the NRL All-Stars podcast. You can go to topsport.com.au or download the really easy-to-use app to take a punt with them today. If you like having a gamble, make sure you do it responsibly, but make sure you go and have a look at Top Sport because they have some of the best odds in market, whether you're looking at racing or sports. We're talking origin this podcast, and I tell you what, they've definitely got the origin markets covered. They've got all the origin markets that you know and love, but they've got some of the best odds that you can find. New South Wales are $1.65 at the moment. I love that one as a New South Wales supporter. But if you're a Queensland supporter, hey, jump on there and grab the $2.35 right now because there's some really good odds that you can find there and there's some great tri-scorer markets on there as well. So don't forget the play performance markets as well where you can actually do some fantasy sports betting. They've got their own fantasy stats that they use based on the NRL.com stats that you can check out with only just half a dozen stats that count as points. And you can see that when you go to the player performance markets on there. It's got a little criteria key at the bottom there of the markets which tells you what they're scoring and how much. And if you fancy yourself as an NRL Supercoach gun, you'll probably do pretty well with that on bidding the over and under on fantasy point scoring on topsport.com.au. So if you're going to create an account, make sure you use the promo code of SC All Stars or one word. They'll know that you're one of our listeners, so they'll take great care of you and know that you're into your footy. But get on them today, topsport.com.au. First of all, let's, you know, we we looked at the controversial picks for New South Wales that weren't expected. Let's look at some of the ones for Queensland. Um, a couple of young guys. There's two young guys in there in the 17 that Selwyn Cobbo, I think five weeks ago, there's no chance that anyone would have thought he would get selected. And Jeremiah Nanai as well. And I will go out on a limb here and say I thought that Jeremiah Nanai was no chance a week or two ago. Um, and he's in, he's in Jersey 17. So two young guys that have come in. Um, I think for one thing, you know, Queensland have lacked a bit of depth, so it's important for them to have some of these young guys coming through, which is good. But yeah, I I actually wouldn't have chosen either of them. And I think that that's a pretty hot take for Selwyn Cobbo, but let me indulge everyone. Uh, Selwyn Cobbo has played dynamite in attacking football for the last month. And before that, you know, for five games, six games, he was really nowhere to be seen and he was making errors and stuff, as you'd expect. And he showed flashes of a 19-year-old kid that's got a bright future ahead of him in the NRL and his learning curve. But, you know, that's all good for NRL level, but not great for state of origin. Uh, I'm, it's, it's, there's a litany of examples, Luke, of 
picking guys early and we like to go on about guys like, you know, Freddie Fittler getting picked out of high school and all these young guys that have done it like Fittler and, and excelled. But there's only a handful of those guys. We don't like to talk about the examples of guys that were absolutely ruined or picked early or were never going to be good enough or we didn't wait long enough for them to be good enough. And, you know, Selwyn Cobbo is a young outside back that can have some defensive, you know, issues um, and he's put... He's got to have a target put on him for sure. And he's a great, brilliant attacking player, but some of that brilliant attack, it's going to be hard for him to manifest some of that um, at the end of this Queensland backline in a state of origin arena. Now, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm down on Selwyn Cobbo at all. I think that he's a future origin player. I think that he's got a huge amount of talent. I just It just seems like an early pick for me when I, I really don't like Corey Oates, but he's had a good year. And he's been solid and he's been there before. They do have some other options. Uh, I just, it just seems early for me with Cobbo. And I do worry uh, for him as a player and for the Maroons that he could get exposed there, being named on the wing with, you know, a handful of games that under his building in NRL level. Well, well I'd, if it happens, I don't worry about it. I, I, so if it really, I'll win. So that'd be fine. <laughs> um, but uh, no, look, I, I'm okay with it. I, I think I'm pretty big on. A, you've got to pick people when they're in form. So, you know, there's no good not picking him now and picking him in a year and a half when you've lost a couple of games and he's not going well, but you're desperate. Um, that's sort of probably the first thing. Um, the, the other thing, I, I just think that yeah, it's a good, brave side and he's an element of that. I think we know what Corey Oates is. And Corey Oates, you know, in fairness to Corey Oates, four, four years ago, I thought Corey Oates was really good. Um, but Corey Oates is, no one's scared of Corey Oates now. Um, no one's frightened about Corey Oates. No one's putting Corey Oates on the tip sheet. And I think it's brave and it has an element of, of Fittler in it in what he's done with a few of these selections. It has an element of Gus Gould in it who picked a very, very young side in the early 2000s and was able to win with a lot of baby faces because he picked bright attacking players when they were young and when they were playing well. And he's very young. Um, but the thing is, I just don't see who's been left out for him. I think if Corey Oates is your hard done by, I'm not saying you're saying he's hard done by, but if, if you're if you're if you're saying, well, now nah, there's Corey Oates, then to me that says you got. Like, I just think Cobo's upside is so much higher than where Corey Oates is at now. That if that's who's missing out, so be it. You know, if, you, if it was Ado Car, of course not. Uh, if it was, you know, even Tupu or someone, no. But but if that's your standard, if you're going, oh, we're either going to have to move Gay Guy and find a centre, or we're going to have to pick Hammersai, who isn't even making the Cowboys starting side, or we're going to have to pick Kyle Felt before he was hurt or it's Oates, then then I think go go for Coppo. <laughs> I'm I'm okay with it. I reckon it's it's brave and Queensland. I think played their best when they have been a bit braver. If you look over the last few years, the only times when they've struggled. When they've been struggling, the only times they've gone well, I think, is when they have gone, you know what, we're going to throw a bit to the wind here and pick. They picked um, Hamasai last year and a few of those things was when they looked their best, when they just chucked it out and played some footy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's valid points that you make as far as the alternates. I will throw out that I think one of the weaknesses of the Queensland back line is when you look at, you know, Brian Tyo and Daniel Tupo have two of the highest work rates and meters mm. in the NRL as far as outside backs go. And they've got huge post-contact meters as well. Xavier Coates is on one wing already, and he's got a notoriously low work rate. Yep. 
and Selwyn Cobbo is almost a clone of that. So coming out of their own end, starting offsets with those guys, um, obviously they have they've got upside. I mean, both of them as fast as lightning, and they're much faster than what Toto mm. and Tupo are. But that is a deficiency. And if you're going for mirroring one wing with the same deficiencies as the other, you know that's probably another cause to say, well, Cobbo could be under the pump a little bit, or the, the Queensland back three might be. And Ponga isn't the sort of guy either that can you know, come through and do that. So I think that that's a bit of a weakness already between Ponga and and Coates being there and throwing Cobbo there, you know, I think it kind of exasperates that a little. I haven't looked at his work rate much. He was um, very good against Newcastle out of the backfield, breaking them through the line all the time. I, I'm not sure Very why. fast and good um, at running no the ball, but as far as actual yeah, work. He, he, he came out, out of the backfield. He made a lot of breaks out of the backfield, and that might have played on Slater's mind if he's because he's done that in a couple of games. He's, he's made some spectacular escapes from the angle. So he's brought the ball back well when he does it, but yeah, his work rate probably not huge. Dane Gagai will help with that. Dane Gagai, even at centre, is a very high work rate. Yep player um he regularly makes two tackles sorry two runs a set for the knights where he if it goes to his wing he bails all the way back to take the second hit which a lot of centers don't he doesn't wait for it to come he gets right back there and goes play two and will go play four so he'll help a bit um but i guess i guess for me it's just i think people in origin get really caught up with the idea of it's going to be hard football so you've got to pick tough people when a lot of the time sometimes you've got to think it's going to be close and hard football and we have to pick someone that is going to be the reason that we break it open the reason that we win 16 10 and don't lose 16 10 and new south wales were very guilty of not doing that during the golden era of, of uh thurston and and, mm. and and you know slater and smith and everyone is we were constantly picking people that would go oh well you know it's going to be a hard game and they've got all this in attack we've got to pick a defensive stodgy player and all it sort of did was make it harder to be the team that actually breaks out of 10 all to win it and i guess Cobo's a guy who can do that um I think Coates is a guy that can do that. And I think on, on our side, we've, we've Freddie's generally picked guys who can do that. And that's probably the other way to look at it. And uh, I, I would agree with you. If there was a really good high work rate winger for them that I thought was really good and runs the ball a lot and was good, then I would be prepared to leave out one of Coates or Cobbo. But I guess like when you don't have one, you've got to take really good players that are imperfect over going for players that you know, a guy that's going to make 15 runs but isn't any good. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I can't see who he's le- that, who's been left out that would have made 20 runs at a tour or, or, or even Daniel Tupu level. Um, I just don't really see who they... They could have moved well, that guy to the not to bring it back up, but he's going to make metres yeah. taking hit-ups and he is able to do uh, he, that. Yeah, but he doesn't... Nah, I'm going to call that <laughs> out. He's a terrible work rate. His work rate is atrocious. I had him in super coach long enough. He, he, he regularly... No, no, well, I'm, not saying that he's, I'm not saying that he's running the ball 20 <laughs> yeah. times, but he's, a good he's able to but, actually make yeah. metres and certainly in an origin arena. Well, Cobbo's good at that too. Cobbo actually does run the ball well when he runs it. He's just not got a lot of volume. Mm. But Oates for me... Oates does not run the ball enough. He, he is a good carrier of it. But no, no, he always should have had a high work rate. But... Yeah, he, he, he'd have been Blake Ferguson if he had run the ball 20 <laughs> times, but he, he, ne- he never wanted to, you know? Um, and there's one. If you had a Blake Ferguson in Queensland, you could make, you'd leave out Coates or Cobbo and say, okay, he's not as brilliant, but Jesus, he's going to be so strong. That, But I, I just think that, I think when you're struggling for players, with Queensland, I think they can win this series, but when you look at who they've got, I think they've made some brave, it would have been really easy to pick some stodgier players that aren't Nanai and that aren't Cobbo, but just don't win your games and don't frighten anyone. There's, there's a lot of, and they've had a history of probably doing that the last few years, have picked a lot of guys who they think will work hard for the jersey and all this, but they're just not that good. And if you don't have really strong 
you know, players in every position, picking some guys that with a point of difference and some upside isn't the worst oh, way no. to go. I get that. I don't mind. You need some factors in there, and you need to pick some of those guys. I just think you need to pick and choose a little bit. And I mean, look, I'm much more critical than an I pick because I just don't think he's got any business being there. And I'm happy to be controversial about it. But look, he's there's a litany of games this year, and he's a young guy. He'll get better. There's a litany of games where he's got two or three penalties and two or three errors and five missed tackles, and that's at NRL level when his side's actually winning by 20 points or something. Like he's he's a wasted pick there, and especially like when we know. David Fafita's got all the deficiencies and there's problems or whatever, but he was healthy before he played that last game. And I would think that the reason why he wanted to play that last game was because he wanted to show that he could be picked for the Maroons. There's no way, like I've had people argue that Nanai should be picked ahead of Fafita. There's no way I wouldn't have Fafita off the bench instead of Jeremiah Nanai if they were both healthy. Like it's just, that should be an automatic selection. And Nanai's got a lot of mistakes there and he's an edge back rower that's a young guy that's, that's, got all those mistakes it's i just i don't i don't like that pick whatsoever but we do need to talk a bit about the good stuff you know i do want to be positive i do like they moved tino to to front row um because i think they were pretty short there Mm. and they could have been uh i guess to your point they could have been under the pressure where they got forced to pick someone bad you know like we've seen a jared wallace there before just because they need an extra front row and stuff and they didn't do that tino's a a good front rower to throw in there um and ruben cotter as well, I, I argued with some people that, you know, well, he's not really a utility anymore. He's a really valuable 13. And I, I think that it was courageous of them to put him at 13. And I think it was the right call by moving Tino and putting him there. So I really liked the movement of Tino and, and the pick of Cotter to start there because I think that it suits him quite well. Yeah, I think that's a good move. Uh, Cotter's not that valuable on the bench. He does play a lot off the bench for the Cowboys. He's named there every week just to troll us. But he um he does play off the bench sometimes. And But when he does that, he still plays big minutes. It, he, his value is his work rate and his effort. So you've got to look at what you get off the bench. And it's not always, in the modern game, it's not always about picking your best player to start. You've got to look at what they bring. And, you know, like one of the reasons you would start Daniel Safidi when he played for New South Wales and have Hass on the bench is because Hassel has all this power and leg speed that can just devastate people when they're tired, whereas Safidi just does what he does anyway. And that's another thing for Queensland here is Cotter off the bench. It, uh, Cotter coming on doesn't, you know, running at tired forwards doesn't make any difference. He's not big and dangerous and running over tired players. He's a guy who just makes a million tackles and a million runs and does all those effort things. So putting him at starting lock is the right way to go you know, even if it moves someone else who you might nominally think is more powerful or stronger or whatever, then they can usually give you more off the bench. Um, and, and Tino to the front row, again, is a good move for that reason. They could have easily picked, um, you know, your Cohen Hesses has got picked. Oh, yes, yeah, so that's, that's another Wallace example. Yeah, yeah. Wallace and Hesses are guys that have come in there. Um, I think, oh, I, I don't know, you know, Molo's been one... Um, Mo Fotowaka, he's probably a little bit unlucky, but he's been pretty bad this year. Um, Mo, I'm really fond of and had a lot of time for and thoughts deserved it in other years. Um, I thought they'd stick with him, but he like he doesn't look fit. Every time I watch him play, I keep mistaking him for Sam Lasone this year, which is a bad sign. Like, <laughs> I've Lassone. done exactly the same Sam, thing. Sam, and I'll yeah. say that Vossi, Vossi yeah. and Warren Smith have both done it too, yeah, so and I don't worry too much. Fotowaka used to be a ball of muscle, that you know, that's ball yeah. sort of forwards and he yeah so he's one I thought might be around there but he's dropped off and you know he probably doesn't deserve undying loyalty yet he hasn't played that many games so I, I think it's a good side um Nanai I, I don't have strong feelings on it with you other than again that I don't know who's been left out that is heaps better either um Nanai is don't oh, well what know, about David Fafita though what if well, Fafita no, didn't get hurt on the weekend oh, of course yeah Fafita's by a mile yeah not even close um like not even close but 
in the side they've got now, Nanai is, he's got 10 tries in 12 games and they're not by accident. He, he's done that because he's got some incredible skill. So he's someone that if they brought him on, you know, he won't be high worker. He'll have terrible super coach stats if they bring him on for 20 minutes on an edge, but he might do the thing that wins the game. So I, I don't mind it from that point of view. I think the Penrith game helped him a lot. That sounds really stupid, but he's been really, mm-hmm. really low work rate. And he got, you know, he's been averaging 50 when he has 10 tries, like 55 or whatever in Supercoach with 10 tries in a back row is appalling. But against Penrith, they were just under the gun and he had no way to show his ability or do any of the things that have got him to first grade. And he made like 50 tackles um, yep. and, and didn't miss many and, and on kick out as well. So I think, I honestly think that game from him and Cotter, it sounds so stupid that getting beat 22 nil might get you in, but Cotter making 60 tackles without a miss and saving a lot of tries and, and Nanai sort of standing up in that game and not missing a lot of tackles and, and, and you know, doing things he hasn't done before probably got them in. I, I just don't feel strong. I don't think it's a terrible pick like you do. If he wasn't picked, I wouldn't say, where is he? Um, but when he's there, I'm not like, oh, gee, such and such has been stiffed. But if he was in and Fafita was out, I would agree with you totally and just say that that's ridiculous because Fafita offers all the well, more upside with more experience and, and everything else. But I think Nano is going to be a good player and I look forward to watching him develop and hopefully it doesn't go too well for Queensland. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we disagree on something finally, yeah. but I disagree well, heavily yeah. on Nano. Yeah. So heavy. Who would you put in instead? Who, who? David Fafita. He no, was out of the fit. side. He's not no, fit, no, no, no. He kind of saw But by no. all reports, <laughs> David Fafita was out of the side yeah. and then well, I was well, in. Yeah, so but, that was before the injury, before the injury. Yeah. But okay, I, I don't now, guess, now, okay. now, who are you putting in the team? Don't tell me who you'd put. Like, I'd put Brad Fittler into the team, but he's not available. <laughs> so, who, who are you putting in that's actually available for Origin One? I'll put Jairo ahead of him. There you well, go. do you I'll think? He, okay, in the team. that's fair enough. But I think he was probably left out because he was, um, you know, um, sleeping around, what bringing people into into COVID camp. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be a culture choice. So, I, I agree with you. If Arrow was had not done that, I think that was odd. I think that with Arrow, I think that they have told him why he isn't picked, and he will come in for game two for some one if they don't win mm, i would suspect because an... neither appy hasn't been picked um arrow hasn't been picked but they're both in camp i would suspect because it, it is pretty he went into an origin camp and and mucked their camp around pretty badly by getting caught yep. doing that and disrupt i would i think they have probably told him that we're not going to pick you in the team for game one for that reason they might not have told him in advance in case they had a million people go down but i reckon when it came time they said look we're going to leave you out for this week it's the wrong message and you'll you'll probably play even if they haven't told him that, he'll come into game two if they don't win. All right. Well, I don't have any um, unfounded rumor theories to bring up to uh, to try and counter that one. But um, <laughs> so I mean, aside from that, I will say you know your your point that you know Jeremiah and I can do things that can win you a game. He can do a lot of stuff that can lose you a game too. I've already raised mm. his missed tackles, his errors, and his penalties conceded and everything else. That's going to be times five in an origin arena, but I'm, I'm happy. I hope you're right. I hope I very much hope you're right. I, I'm I, happy that we disagree yeah. a bit because we need to, you need to get yeah. a bit more argy bargy on the, on these podcasts. <laughs> There's too much agreeance. So yeah. that's good. We'll, we'll, well wait and I'll, see what All happens. I will say is I hope you're very right. I do not want to be proven correct. I want you South Wales <laughs> to win three nil and I hope he makes 25 mistakes. <laughs> well, I mean the other um, part of the side as well, I will say, you know, I've, uh, uh, it, it was a bit of controversy that Ben Hunt's been named at nine to start. And Harry Grant's on the bench. Now, look, it's a real, it's been happening for 50 years in rugby league, especially in representative matches, that you've got someone like Harry Grant that you don't want to play 80 minutes in, a, in an origin game because you want him to have the zip and attack. Um, and oh, look, bringing him in 15, 20 minutes in and playing the game out, I, I don't think it's that big a deal, um, especially because Ben Hunt's quite a good defensive 
hooker. He can take on the brunt of the defence and get into it in the first 10 minutes in the softening up period. So, it, it, like, it didn't even stand out to me, really. Like, I still think that Harry Grant's playing 60-plus minutes and I'm still scared of Harry Grant. So, well, to me, it was fine, Luke. But, you know, to some Queensland fans, they sort of called that out a little bit and said Harry should be starting and Hunt should be the utility on the bench. How did you see that one? No, no, I don't agree with that. Um, Hunt, firstly, Grant's injured. Like, he didn't even play last week. So, if they're concerned about him getting... If it was a groin injury and he's a running hooker, so he's not 100% fit. If you if he missed last week with a groin, he's not going to be... He's obviously got some concern. So, it makes sense that you might want him to play 60. Um, and you use less interchanges doing it this way, quite obviously, which is important in origin. You know, it does matter. So, that's one less. Instead of using two interchanges, they'll make one at hooker by bringing him on after maybe 20, 20 minutes. I'd play him 60. And the third one is Hunt's a gun. And, and Hunt is a gun hooker. I mean, first, he's winning the Dally M at halfback. He's had a very good season at halfback that's being a bit overlooked because his team isn't all that good. very overlooked, yeah. Um, and even yeah. when Saints are really bad, he still ends up playing yeah. really well for uh, them. Yeah, I know. He's, I always felt sorry for him because he's not just the grand final drop, but when he screws things up, he does them really obviously and glaring, the sort of thing that makes the news, like forgetting to kick on tackle five in a semi and dropping the ball. He's got to start making a lot, of, a lot more errors, just real small ones. And yeah, then he'll well, be fine. Like just do the I real subtle totally. little ones and no one well, picks up. <laughs> well, I mean, the Cowboys are going great at the moment, but but Chad Townsend, for example, gets less flack than, than Ben Hunt and isn't half the player. Like, because a lot of the time he's just played halfback and not done anything that good or that bad. And mm. Hunt does all these brilliant things. But when it, the mistakes just make highlight reels, they're, they're proper bloopers and often very funny when you're an, a neutral. But he's a gun. And, and at Hooker, he's a fantastic dummy half. He's had a lot of good games for Queensland. So, 20 minutes of Hunt, Grant on for the whole game, sit Hunt down, and then you've got a guy who can come back on at hooker, he could come on at lock, and he covers the halves. So I think it's perfect. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I, I actually, I, I like the idea behind it and how they've done it. So but I didn't look at it twice. Uh, look, the Queensland side versus the New South Wales side. Um, I'm going to give you my take on game one, and then you can let me know what you think. But I think that the New South Wales team is going to win. I'm not being biased with that. I'll give you the reasons. Uh, I do think that Cameron Munster is in great form, and I'm worried about that. Um, but the rest of that spine, um, Harry Grant is a little bit underdone, and Caelan Ponga is underdone for form for this season. Daly Cherry Evans is having the worst season that I've seen him have. Um, comparatively, I think that the New South Wales spine is going much better. Uh, I certainly don't have any concerns about Nathan Cleary and him and Jerome Luai work well together and are playing well. Uh, James Tedesco has come back right back into form. I never thought he was really that out of form. I thought it was a bit overstated. And Damien Cook's been playing well too. So certainly I think the spine is going to get um, New South Wales home, but I also think that the pack will as well. Uh, I think the Queensland forwards are, are quite good. I like what they've done, but it is pretty one-dimensional. They've got a lot of workers in there and a lot of real solid workers, uh, whereas New South Wales have got a lot more variety and guys like Cameron Murray and Isaiah Yo uh, are really, and even Junior Paulo if he gets the offload out too, and Ryan Madison coming off the bench, I think that's going to be a bit too much for the Queensland forwards too. So between the spine and the forwards, I think that New South Wales will, will win this one. And the fact that it's in Sydney just makes it um, makes me even more assured that it's going to happen. I do like the Maroons team. I'm looking forward to the series. I think it's going to be a really competitive one, but I like New South Wales for game one. Yep, I think it'll be a very close series. Um, I ugh, I am minded to tip Queensland. Um, I think that it's been it was the last couple of years. I, I think that the difference between the teams has been Latrell Mitchell and Tom Travojevic, and the only time we didn't win was when they didn't play, uh, which is what's happening again. So I mean, the only time Freddie's not won is when those two didn't play. 
And that's the situation we're faced with at the moment. I think tr- that Trevojevic and Mitchell have had some of the best games I've ever seen anyone play in the New South Wales jersey under Brad Fittler. And that with them out, I think it takes out a lot of the things that have happened for us in games where we've broken them open, have come off the back of them. Um, if New South Wales are to win, and the thing I'm really interested in seeing is Nathan Cleary, because Nathan Cleary has never had a game at origin level that took me back and went, wow. Uh, he, he hasn't no, had a wow he game, hasn't, yeah. He was solid and not setting up a lot of points and under pressure for his spot for a long time. And then when we started winning, he was kicking deep, tackling, and, and it was all off Turbo and, and Latrell. So he now is going to, him, him and Teddy and Cook are good enough to do it, but he's now going to have to do a bit more than he had to do when he could just have his centres roaming the middle of the field and throwing everyone off. So I'm really keen to see how he goes. Uh, I'm not calling it a test because, I mean, the guy's a gun. Like, he, you know, he's been to two grand finals and won a comp. He's an absolute he's a fantastic player. But I'm really interested to see if he can kick up a gear. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess just logically speak, I want New South Wales to win. I think they can, but I think Fitler has gone a bit more conservative than I've ever seen him go before, uh, which I don't like. I think that he's more worried about Queensland than I've seen him do before. And I think Queensland have picked a, a better team than they have before. And, yeah, logically, the difference, it's in the stats. We we didn't win when we didn't have Latrell and Turbo. And that's what's happened. They're, so, they're, they're definitely big losses. They're big losses. Um, they're two of the best five players in the competition. But you know what? Mm. I, I, I quite clearly made my pick very, very evident there in what I picked. But um, are you saying you're picking Queensland, mate? Or what's going on? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, th- I think they'll win game one. I don't think they'll win the series. I think they'll, well, I think they'll win the first game. Wow, yeah. game one in Sydney going to Queensland. That's um big call, but I'm glad. Look, look at all the disagreements. How good is this? It's almost like we... I think it'll be close. By the way, I, I don't. I, I'm not tipping confidently tipping Queensland. I think it'll be really close. I I think this is really close, and I'm just having a stab at who might win. But I think this is a really good series potentially. I think it's a yeah. really good series. So I, yeah. as much as um you know we've talked about the critical things for the Blues and the critical things for the yeah. Maroons. Overall, I like both teams. Um, and yeah. and I think it's really important, like whether you're, I've kind of singled out New South Wales fans, but, you know, regardless, you know, if you're an Origin fan, it's, it's great to look at the teams. It's exciting. It's fun to debate stuff and controversies and everything else. But what I will say is, you know, there's a line in the sand for me. You know, you kind of, you can be critical um, to a point and you can, you know, say, oh, look, I wouldn't have picked that person to a point or whatever. But you've got to remember that a ball hasn't been kicked yet. So I always pull myself up and don't quite get to have that line because to me, Let's see what actually happens. And even when I disagree with some of the selections on either side, I'm I'm open to see what actually happens before I get too critical on them. So one other thing, like I understand that you're picking New South Wales to lose game one, but you like them for the series. Another thing outside of the actual players on the field for me is, uh, you know, the coaching is obviously Billy Slater with his assistants of, of Thurston and Smith, all very smart players. And, and some of them, you know, even all three of them could end up being really good coaches. But the fact remains that none of them have actually coached a game before. And I I don't think that's been spoken about much, but that's something for me, Luke. Like everyone can be, you know, hassle Brad Fittler as much as they like, but they forget he was a very smart player with a high footy IQ as much as any of these guys when he played. And he's had the benefit of going through and having a small stint with the Roosters um, and then coming back and coaching representative teams like Lebanon and so forth uh, in international level. And he's actually won three out of the last four State of Origin series. So as much as people want to maybe criticise Freddie, He's still got coaching experience, whereas these guys don't. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that they'll get there, but it is their first game that they're ever coaching these three. Do you take any stock in that when you're looking at who might take away this game one? 
Um, yeah, to a point. I'm trying to see who else they got on the staff. Usually you find someone quite experienced on the staff. Um, I think Hannah is on there somewhere. He's not heaps experienced. He has coached first grade. But, yeah, I, I, oh, it's a hard one to know. I, I, don't think, I, I don't think they do that much coaching in camp in tech, like technical coaching. So I don't – that doesn't worry me. But certainly I think it's more in the middle of the series. If Queensland were to lose, there might be a – I think game one will be okay. But if they go in and lose, there might be a sense that these guys don't quite have the experience to know how to react, like whether they need to back everyone for game two or whether they panic and get ropey and start dropping everyone or, or they pick everyone but they completely throw the game plan out or they don't know that they should throw the game plan out and stick to a bad one. You know what I mean? It's more um, – I don't think it impacts this first game, but if they don't win or things don't go to plan, it's whether they know – how to stay calm and come up with the right response because sometimes you just do lose and you just need to go again and back what you've, you know, back your eye of what you, how you plan to play uh, before the series. Or sometimes you, re- you really need to recognise that it didn't work and you need to make big adjustments, whether to the playing squad or to the actual game plan. It all, it's all situational and all depends on, on a lot of external things. And that's the stuff you don't quite know how to trust yourself yet. You A, don't know how they'll mm. react and they you don't know how much to trust their own judgment and instincts like a Wayne Bennett can lose a game one and just go I know the plan was good I know the players were right we just didn't win and I can stick to it or he knows that hang on I stuffed up like he knows to back his eye and go and do that and they're at the complete upper end of the spectrum where they really don't know have that trust in themselves yet so if they lose the first game there I think it would be a big advantage um, for New South Wales and I think if New South Wales lose game one they're a much better chance of still winning the series than Queensland will if they lose the first game I think they're dead so I just think they won't have that mm. mouse to really know how to react to that properly. And that's not a criticism. It's just the fact of life that experience is important. That's all. Oh, of course, yeah. And you've, done, you've got to be able to do stuff on the fly, which is, I think, the biggest thing with it. I don't, look, I, to finish off on the coaching, I'm not going to go too much into it. I don't think it's a massive deal, but I think it's something that will affect the game. And it, it, it is also things like having the experience, like you mentioned, Luke, to say, okay, this has just happened in the game. This is what I do as opposed to saying this has just happened in the game, what do I do now? And unfortunately, these decisions have to be made quickly, even if it's just that you've gotten two HIAs in one minute or you've gotten, um, you know, absolutely rolled in the middle and, you you know, you're not sure what to do to adjust or um, New South Wales are up 18-0 and you've got to get some messages out there and get your troops to, to come back together. Like there's a lot of things that ha- can happen in a football game that are very different for a player on the field compared to a coach that's lived and breathed and done it several times before. So I think that that can can make an impact, whether it's enough of an impact to give New South Wales a win. I'm definitely not going to say that. Let's move along to the last part of the podcast. The favourite part for a lot of listeners, and certainly I love doing it, it's the Legend Rewind, and that is uh, today, Ricky Stewart. So, Luke, Ricky Stewart has been on the Rugby League Cemetery podcast many times uh, and he had a stellar career with the Canberra Raiders before going over to the Bulldogs and actually going quite well there. But for those that, I guess, haven't really looked or weren't alive for Ricky Stewart's career, he's a three-time premiership winner, 1989, 1990, 1994, two kangaroo tours in 90 and 94, World Cup in 92, Dalian Player of the Year in 93, got the Dalian uh, Clive Churchill, medal winner in 1990. Rothman's medal winner in 1993. Played a, a huge amount of games, 296 first-class games, 48 tries, but he wasn't really that much of a try scorer. And look, for me, Luke, what I remember about Stuart is always going to be those big spiral passes, right? But also <laughs> his kicking game. But those spiral yeah. passes, like people need to remember 
and 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 a lot of people don't even know like he he almost revolutionized a part of the game you know he all of a sudden came out with these passes that would literally go 30 meters torpedoed through and hit someone on the chest and we hadn't really seen that before ever nobody had thrown a ball like that before and certainly not to that degree of accuracy and speed and certainly not covering that much field and the way he did that it, it can't be talked about enough how much it opened up the game for everyone else. And that's apart from going to the fact that he was an amazing kicker of the ball as well. Uh, but that was such a quintessential halfback where he really was a general. He organized everything. His passing game was better than anybody else on the team. And his kicking game was better than anyone else on the team. And both of those things were actually two of the best in the era, if not the best in his era of playing rugby league. So to me, Stewart's vastly overlooked because when people bring up a, you know, a Cooper Cronk, and this is no disrespect to Cooper Cronk at all. I think Cooper Cronk's an amazing player when he was playing, but it's all about Cooper's organisational skills. It's passing, it's kicking accuracy and all that stuff. Ricky Stewart was doing it all. In fact, he invented some of it, Luke. Oh, yeah. He was, he was, he almost invented spiral passing for starters. Like, fair dinkum, I'm barely exaggerating that he nearly invented it. Like, he just did, no one threw passes like that before him. Um, their, their attack, the, the, if you ever watch an old Raiders game, what stands out is they get the ball at dummy half and, and Steve Walters throws a 15 meter flat spiral to Ricky Stewart, who goes, woof and throws a 30 meter spiral to Laurie Daly he goes woof he throws a 20 meter spiral to the center like Mel Meninga or Brett Mullins on the other edge and they cover the whole field in two passes off the dummy half it goes dummy half long pass and one pass two pass whole field can get crossed and they barge down that edge and then when they don't it doesn't work they go woof and throw all the way back to the other edge it's quite incredible what they did um and and Ricky also I think was a lot. If you ask a lot of people who know the game, is that who was the best kicker of a football ever? They'll say Ricky Stewart, and the reason they say that is because he he's he was the first, or not the first, but he was the he perfected torpedo kicking, and it's actually nearly gone out of the game now. People don't torpedo kick long because they can't control it. But there was an era where he started torpedo kicking long, so he get it in his own half and add. He could add twenty meters to his kick by torpedoing it. If you can do it properly, it goes a lot further than end over end long kick. And he used to just hit them from his own twenty or thirty and land them on the other twenty or thirty in space. And he got so good at that that Jason Taylor then started doing it. And he was a gun, and, and Andrew John started doing it. And all these sort of guys. And it's actually gone backwards now. People are too risk adverse to do it because it's such a skill. But he would do it every kick. All of his long kicks were spirals. And the eighty nine grand final, he kicks absolutely kicks the Tigers out of the game. Like the Tigers are all over them. And Ricky just keeps turning them around with these kicks that go from his own 20 to the opposition 20 to start the sets down the other end. It's quite incredible. He it was a bit of a blend between a Cooper Cronkin and Andrew Johns and in that he had Andrew Johns's incredible spiraling passes and kicking and stuff, but the organizational and the barking and everything of a Cronk of moving his pieces around and a real winner like Cronk was that those Raiders team won everything with him there. And, and one of the great looks of that is of course, that they won in 89, they won in 90, they lost the grand final in 91 and they win it in 94. Well, in 1993, they were the minor premiers with a round or two to go. Well, they didn't end up finishing. They were coming first with a round or two to go. Uh, and he did his ankle in a game they won 68 nil, um, which they didn't really need to have him still on the field for at 68 nil. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he gives his ankle and misses the whole final series. They don't win again. They just go out. They go out in straight sets in the semis. They lose their last game, don't win the minor premiership and just go bang, bang out of the finals. So, you know, like, and that's a team I might add 
that was a super team that has Brett Mullins in it. That has like Melman Ingram is an immortal and he was in it. It has Nagus. It has Wiki. It has uh, Laurie Daly. It's got Steve Walters, Clyde. It, it, you know, Clyde. Yeah. Like Dave Ferner, like you just keep going. Like it is an all time side, even without him in it. Like if that was my side now, you'd just be like, Holy hell, they won't lose a game. Um, but they couldn't win one without Ricky. And that's one of the, and- that was one of the big <laughs> things, right? That, um, yeah. you know, he's, he's very forgotten because, he was overshadowed by so many of his teammates and everyone sort of looked at Which it as <laughs> those Canberra Raiders were the Mal Meninga sides or the Laurie Daly sides oh. or even both those guys in units. Whereas Ricky Stewart was was easily yep. just as important as anyone and you could argue was more important than the guys that were probably better players than him, but not as important as what he was. No, he was a gun. And I think um, if you'll indulge me, what I can I can do with you is I've got to, on one of the cemetery games, we watched the greatest game of football ever played, it's been called, and it is. It's the uh, second test of Great Britain versus Australia in 1990. And I did a piece at the end of it um, on some statistics of Ricky's record with Alan Langer. And the reason I do this is not to denigrate Alan Langer to anyone who listens to this, but Alan Langer to me is someone that is remembered. He's backed very hard by Queensland fans. He's remembered as an absolute God and a lot of people will tell you that thinks they're the best. He's the best halfback they've seen, and all that sort of stuff. And I'm not here to denigrate that. I'm only here to put that if you think Alan Lang is that good, then it's worth pointing out a comparison to Ricky, so you can just see how good Ricky was as well, because he hasn't quite got the same gloss now that Langer has um, and if you look at that so the thing to look at is that actually in they were big rivals in the 90s you know they were the two toe and to and froing for the Australian position and you know the Raiders won in 89 and 90 and second in 91 the Broncos won in 92 93 and Ricky won in 94 so they won every comp apart from one between them for half a decade those two teams um, when in the 1990 kangaroo tour they go there and Alan Langer is picked for the first test against Great Britain and Ricky's picked at 5'8", obviously not a 5'8", and that's a weird combination. I don't know whose idea that was. Uh, they lose that game and they sack Alan Langer and bring Ricky in at halfback and they come from 1-0 down to win the series 2-1 and Ricky actually wins game two. It's, it, it's the best game you'll ever see. If you haven't seen it, you all need to go back and watch it or at least do my podcast on it. Um, but Ricky <laughs> literally wins the game with a couple of minutes left by this massive run from his own half to set up the 70 win. 70-meter run. Uh, unbelievable. And what's interesting is then, though, is they go to the 1994 Kangaroo Tour and Alan Linger is again picked for the first test over Ricky Stewart, who isn't picked at all. They lose that game. And they go on to, they, they again sack Langer and they pick Ricky and they win both of them again. So they come down from 1-0 down to go up 2-1. Uh, they actually win those games 38-8 and 23-4, having lost without, so all they've done is change Alfie out for Ricky. And so what you've got now is, is you've got two back-to-back kangaroo tours where they pick Langer over him. Langer can't win the game. And Ricky comes in and they win every game that Ricky plays there and take the series. And that's not to say Langer played badly or was at fault. All I'm saying is that halfback's the most important position on the field and his great rival couldn't get it done. They didn't win. And Australia doesn't lose, you know, an international level. Um, They put Ricky in, they do win. You then go to State of Origin and they played in five series together um, against each other, Alfie and Ricky. Uh, Ricky's got him 4-1. Basically, Ricky won in 1990, Alfie won in 91, and Alan Langer never won another series that Ricky Stewart played in. Ricky Stewart won in 92, 93, and 94. He has an 8-6 overall record in origin over Alan Langer. In an era, keep in mind that these 92-94, the Broncos won the comp in 92-93, so Alan Langer was in a great Broncos side who's, who put most of their players into origin, and it was an era that you know Queensland were very dominant, and Ricky had come in to be 
one part of one of the first real errors that New South Wales was successful in consistently. So none of that that I'm putting out there is to denigrate on Alan Langer. I really don't want that to be the message. It's just to put across that if, you, if you're one of the people who sits back and says how good Alan Langer was, you might want to remember how good Ricky was too, because Ricky was, was a great rival of his, had a very good record against him at state of origin level. He was able to win test matches that Langer couldn't win. And it's important that when you bring up people like that, that Ricky should be in that conversation of those all-time level halfbacks that can be compared to absolutely anyone that's ever played. He was an absolute weapon. 100%. And, you know, the, the important thing with bringing up Alan Langer is that that era, Ricky Stewart had a lot of uh, a lot of rivals that were really highly regarded. Alan Langer's obviously the number one, and he gets remembered the most fondly, and he's almost the opposite of what Ricky Stewart is. You know, people forget about Ricky Stewart and how good a halfback he was, whereas people uh, remember what a great halfback Alan Langer was, which they should, but unfortunately some people like put him probably higher than what they should when they're considering people like Ricky Stewart as their contemporaries as well. There was others too, you know, in his area, he had Greg Alexander as well, oh, who, yeah. who was an amazing halfback. Oh, and I mean, he, he won a 1985 Dallie M. So he sort of peaked a few years before Stewart came through, but nonetheless, he was still there. Cliff Lyons was still an absolute master in the early nineties. You know, he absolutely mm. killing it from early and a, a very pivotal. And he was, he didn't get a look in with all the other ones, but if he played another year, as you know, he he could have been, you know, considered the best halfback in the competition for a few years with how he played. Uh, he was another one. Um, Stacey Jones came through at the back end, I'm pretty sure as well. Mm. You know, there was a yeah. there was a lot of really good halfbacks over that time. Certainly, Alan Langer would be the best one along with Stewart. I would probably say, but I, I would actually take Stewart over Langer, and that is that is really controversial, but. The, I, I think Alan Langer was an amazing halfback. Like he, he, he deserves to be spoken about glowingly, but at the same time, Ricky Stewart does too. And I'll go back to what you said a bit earlier, Luke, to close up on. Um, you mentioned that, you know, you don't really see the spiral passing and, and the torpedo kicking and stuff anymore because people are too sort of conservative and scared to do it. The reason why that is, is because it is so difficult to do. You know, we talk yeah, about these yeah. try scorers that, you know, you know, no one can move like a Greg Inglis in flight, and, you know, beat the defenders and have the power and the speed all rolled in one and all these other guys, no one can do the fitless step. And we, we lackadaisical about all these amazing skills that are so hard to replicate, but it's one of the, you know, basics of the game, passing and kicking. But the way he did it is so difficult that a lot of, you know, 90% plus of halfbacks would probably fail trying to do it. And it's just not worth the failure to try and even bother doing the sort of torpedo passes or torpedo kicks that Ricky Stewart was doing. Yeah, it's an incredible skill. And just, I I already said it, but just to emphasise it, we're not talking about bombs. Like bombs have only just come back. Nathan Cleary started spiral bombing about a year and a half ago, and it's been really exciting that everyone started doing it again. I used to hate end over end bombs because they're boring and no one drops them. Um, and that that's really revolutionized things that, but, but if you think that's good, what Ricky used to, Ricky used to kick long like that. Cause you can, as you like, the reason that you want a torpedo bomb is because they go higher and they spin and they're hard to catch. Ricky was doing that with his long kicks. He was getting it 30 out and torpedoing it all the way down the other end to gain 20 meters on everyone else. And there's very few people, you know, th- that probably can do it. You're right. But they, they don't even try. He, he was the master of it. Jason Taylor was very good around the same time and just after. And Andrew Johns, you know, is very clearly influenced by Ricky Stewart. Some of the things he perfected were things that only Ricky had really done before that. And they were guys who used to terrorize teams with their kicking game in a way that we haven't probably seen for the last 10 years. It's really only been the last 18 months that 
Cleary has started to terrorize people where you start to think this guy's kicking game is a weapon. A long time since we've said that, like a, a kicking game is a weapon again, not just about accuracy. And, and you're seeing a little bit of it when, with Burton's bombs now where people are talking about how it's an actual weapon. That's what these guys were like. They used to actually worry about Andrew Johns' kicking game, about Jason Taylor's kicking game. And, and Ricky was the first like that. You'd be in there going, "What? wait, if he kicks, we're in trouble. You know, he's going to kick it so far we can't get out of, out of our own end. If he bombs it, we're screwed. We can't catch it. And and it was terrorizing people. He, he was It was absolutely wonderful. And it's so noticeable watching his games. He's on a different level to everyone else. And, you know, I guess finish off, I, I won't pick out of him and Langer. I'll just say that I, I just think that there's no reason for one of them to be remembered as fondly as they are if the other one isn't. If, if you think Alfie was that good, well, I've given you some food for thought to say, hey, make sure you mention Ricky Stewart next time you're talking great halfbacks. 100%. So we'll wrap up on Ricky Stewart and I'll wrap up just by saying he was a halfback that had to do the things that he did uh, with no predecessors showing him how to do it. Ricky Stewart basically invented the spiral pass and torpedoes on how he did it and no one or very rarely was able to replicate what he did. And if that isn't trailblazing, if that isn't uh, someone who has really contributed to rugby league and been an absolute legend of the game. And I don't know what is because other people couldn't do the things that he did before him and other people couldn't do the things after him. And I think that unfortunately, because Ricky Stewart's had a long coaching career, everyone kind of looks at Ricky Stewart, the coach, <laughs> and forgets a little bit about Ricky Stewart, the player, which you kind of need to separate those two things, guys and girls, because then you'll, you'll enjoy watching the Ricky Stewart's a lot more. So watch the Ricky Stewart clips. Fantastic career. Glad we could look at him because the sorts of things that he did were very different to the type of things that, as rugby league fans, we normally love and lord and, and value so much. You don't normally get people that affect the game like Ricky in the ways that he did. So great legend, Rewind, Luke. Love talking about it. Love the podcast, huge podcast with the Origin series and the legend Rewind. Spent a lot of time on those because they were big topics. But I had to get you on to do it. Thanks very much for making the time to jump on, mate. It was a lot of fun once again. Loved it, mate. Hopefully when we're back on, New South Wales are up one or two nil. Oh, fingers crossed. You can find the Rugby League Cemetery podcast and hear Luke on that one anywhere that you hear good podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, it's everywhere. But this podcast is everywhere too, not just iTunes, not just Spotify. But if you want to, you can jump on Audible, Amazon. You can also uh, jump on SoundCloud as well and also subscribe on all those too. Jump on Twitter, follow us there, NRL underscore SC underscore All Stars and jump on the sponsor of the All Stars podcast. That is Topsport, topsport.com.au. Go create an account today and use the promo code SC All Stars so they know that you're one of our listeners and they'll take great care of you. We've got the Supercoach episode next Wednesday dropping, another talking footy episode next Friday. Get into them. We've got buy rounds this week, so listen to all the old episodes if you want, but enjoy the footy this week. Don't be too harsh on me and Luke if you're a Queensland fan. We love your team as well and look forward to chatting to you post-Origin 1. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid. <laughs>